BFFT. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald faced truth. Well, the Pac-12 conference was looking pretty good in the bowl picture. That is until UCLA took the field in El Paso today. UCLA melted down, wilted, tripped, stumbled. Second half was terrible for the Bruins. They lose in the Sun Bowl, 37-35 to Pitt. We'll talk about the Pac-12 and what uh, next season holds. Big weekend and big Monday in particular for the conferences. Utah will play in the Rose Bowl, and USC will play in the Cotton Bowl. Today's show, we'll talk to Kenny Dillingham, former offensive coordinator at the University of Oregon, now the head coach at Arizona State. Dillingham will be with us this hour, just a few minutes from now, to talk about the end of his time at Oregon and the beginning of his time at Arizona State. You've heard him introduced there as the new coach at Arizona State, but uh, you have not seen uh, or heard what the end of Dillingham's tenure meant, what he saw in the field, his work with Bo Nix. What happened down the stretch? Was Dillingham distracted? We'll talk to him about it. I'll ask him. You'll hear it on today's show. Also, we'll deal with the Blazers and the mystery wrapped in the enigma, wrapped in the question around Gary Payton II. What is going on? with the Blazers uh, at this point of the season. Should they? Should Blazer fans feel encouraged or discouraged? Trade deadline uh, looming in February. Uh, what will uh, the Blazers be? Will they be a buyer? Will they be a seller? Will they be an observer at the trade deadline? Talk to Sean Hyken on the Rose Garden Report coming up at 4 o'clock. Why don't you hear for that? Last night, uh, I thought it was really interesting. Um, I got a weird text message last night uh, from Dan Lanning's dad. Don Lanning reached out to me last night and uh, told me that uh, he was, I said, what are you doing? And he said, I- I'm driving, and we're driving, and he had left California and was headed into Arizona. And I said, what are you doing in a car? Dan Lanning's parents are from suburban Kansas City, rural Missouri, about uh, an hour outside of Kansas City. And what was he doing in a car, you know, crossing from California to Arizona? Well, he was like a lot of people who have dealt with airline cancellations and Southwest Airlines and others. Uh, Dan Lanning's parents got caught up in that. They were at the airport in Kansas City. I wrote a column today about Dan Lanning's parents and Michael Penix Jr.'s parents, who were both caught in similar predicaments around the bowl game. And look, I'm I'm a dad. You're a parent. You know and you understand what your kids mean to you, and you know the lengths to which you go to see your kids play and participate or and to support your kids when they are attempting an athletic endeavor or they're coaching or whatever they're doing. You want to support your kids. And so I just think it's a really charming look behind the scenes at Michael Penix Jr.'s mother and father and uh, who drove 17 hours from Florida to San Antonio, Texas, to be there for the Alamo Bowl. And Dan Lanning's parents, uh, Don Lanning and Janice, uh, who uh, made the trip from Kansas City all the way to San Diego. It's 22 hours. That's a hell of a drive in a Ford Edge, uh, 2019 Ford Edge, uh, you know, making their way across Route 66 and through the agricultural heartland of America 
And, uh, you know, I wrote a column about who was in the car with them. It's really interesting. Uh, one of uh, Dan Lanning's uh, nephews was, uh, for Christmas, asked his parents, could he go to the Holiday Bowl to see his uncle coach and to see the Oregon Ducks? And so this is a nine-year-old kid who, is, who made it his Christmas wish to go see the Oregon Ducks. So he was with Grandma and Grandpa at the airport in Kansas City when – they said, hey, your flight's canceled. You're not going to get to go to San Diego. You're going to be sitting here for a few days. Uh, and it, you know, they decided to jump in the car and make the drive. And that's not an unfamiliar story. We have uh, you know, had some sports writers like Matt Prima, 24-7 Sports, who jumped in a pickup truck and drove from Eugene to San Diego. You hear stories uh, around the country, horror stories about the lost luggage and people stranded and you know, everybody kind of pointing a finger at Southwest Airlines and bad technology and what's wrong with their system. But the truth is there are some real-world implications that are playing themselves out in the last couple of weeks. And I thought it was a really interesting look behind the scenes. And I wrote it at johnconzano.com. You can check it out. Behind the scenes at what happens when the head coach's parents get stuck in the airport. It's not like Dan Lanning could scramble a uh, 737 to help bring his parents and his nephew and his brother, and fly him out to the game. They instead jumped in a 2019 Ford Edge and made their way across the country. I wrote about that. I wrote about Michael Penix Jr.'s parents. I hope you read it. It's uh, a really interesting look at kind of parenthood. And I get it. I understand it. Man, I have been in numerous situations. I was covering a Las Vegas Bowl years ago. I believe Oregon State or Oregon was in the Vegas Bowl that year. And the game happened to be held on a Christmas Eve. And my now 20-year-old daughter was probably like four, five, six at the time. And uh, I'll be damned if I was going to miss Christmas morning. And you know what Christmas morning is like, it, you know, if you're a parent and you've got like a five-year-old or a six-year-old. Christmas morning is it. You don't want to miss that. And I can remember I was clock-watching in the press box as, you know, the game is ticking down and it's in the fourth quarter and I, I've got a flight, like the last flight out on Southwest Airlines that night, coming out of Vegas, flying back to PDX. And I was clock watching going, okay, am I going to make it? My rental car, I parked my rental car in the parking lot and I put it in such a way that, you know, you know post-game traffic, right? You're leaving a stadium. Well, I was at uh, uh, Sam Boyd Stadium that night in Vegas and I I moved my car from media parking to the absolute last row of parking in the parking lot, uh, you know, just before the game. I moved as far away as I could get, and I pointed my car towards the exit and my luggage in the trunk, and then I went back in the stadium, and I said, okay, when this game ends, and I write my column, and I'm going to have to scramble straight to the airport, or guess what? I'm not going to be there on Christmas morning. So I'm flying out on Christmas Eve. And I can remember, like, feeling the, the pressure of that as a parent weighed against the, the expectations that I have professionally as a sports columnist to write a, a good game column and, and be present. And I'm going to tell you, like, you know, as I look back over the years at, you know, the sacrifices that you make professionally, if you work at all, you know what I'm talking about, you miss things. And I especially miss things because I was on the road, I was traveling, whatnot. So I can relate a little bit, and I think we all can, with a parent like Michael Penix Jr.'s mother and father who are trying to get from Florida to Texas to see the Alamo Bowl, or Dan Lanning's parents who are trying to get from Kansas City to San Diego to see the Holiday Bowl, and people will say, oh, those are just, those are meaningless bowl games. No, don't tell that to a parent. It's the same as Christmas morning for me. 
And I can remember filing my column on deadline, hitting send, closing up my laptop, scrambling out of the press box, praying that there's not going to be any traffic on the way to the airport in Vegas, jumping in my rental car and jamming to the airport all the way going, I don't know if I'm going to make this flight. I'm going to have to carry on my luggage. I'm already checked in. I don't know. I, you know, I was arriving at the airport at like 43 minutes before my flight left. I got to go to a rental car and drop off my car. And suddenly I realize that the rental car lot has got a huge line. Cars are backed up. If I, if I go to drop the rental car off, I'm not going to make it. I'm going to miss Christmas morning. I had to make a decision on the fly at that airport that day. And I thought about the parents as I, you know, as uh, writing that column this morning, I was like, man, I, I, I can't imagine being in Kansas City and going, okay, we got, like, uh, we got like a day and a half to get to San Diego. It's 22 hours. Let's go. Or I can't imagine being Michael Penix Jr.'s parents being in Florida going, Southwest Airlines canceled the flight. Uh, Alamobile is happening tomorrow. We got 17-hour drive. We better go. And, but they did it. And I'll tell you what I did in Vegas oh so many years ago as I was, uh, you know, realizing I'm not going to be able to drop off my car. I called the rental car counter from my cell phone and I said, hey, I'm not going to be able to drop you my car. And they said, sir, you have to you have to bring the car back. I said, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave the car curbside. I'll leave the keys in the car. It's at the departures. It's sitting on the curb. Luckily, the uh, departures arrivals uh, gates uh, for for the airline on Christmas Eve in Vegas were were uh, sparse. There weren't many people departing. Just a couple of flights. And I parked that rental car right on the curb like you're not supposed to do. You know, they're out there going, hey, don't leave your car here. I left my car there, and I left the keys in it, and I got on that plane. I barely made it home for Christmas Eve and Christmas morning. But I'm going to tell you, I look back, I just shake my head at it. The rental car agency uh, never called me, didn't charge me. They must have picked the car up. I haven't heard about it. It's been like 15, 16 years. But I left that car curbside at the airport, which you're not supposed to do. It's a big no-no. But I understand. Like, when I when I was talking to, you know, uh, Dan Lanning's dad and really, you know, his mom, they were sending me pictures they had taken along their travels. Yeah, but guess what? They were headed home last night. As Don Lanning told me, they were headed back from San Diego, making that drive back. We all know how, how much, how bad the drive back is after you have pulled an all-nighter driving to a location. Uh, and I said, how are you passing the time? And it turns out that Dan Lanning's parents were passing the time on their drive back from San Diego to Kansas City. They were headed to Flagstaff, Arizona last night. Uh, they were passing the time by listening to the Holiday Bowl radio broadcast of Washington playing against Texas. There's some synergy there, isn't there? Kenny Dillingham is coming up next, Arizona State football coach. I'm going to ask him, was he distracted down the stretch? What would he say to people who say he was distracted? Stay tuned. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. A lot of people in this state remember Kenny Dillingham as the offensive coordinator at the University of Oregon. He's now at Arizona State, head coach there. Uh, coach, uh, 
Give us an idea. What's what's that been like for you and your family to kind of take that next step? It's awesome to be home. It's awesome to be back. Uh, obviously, uh, both my myself and my wife's alma mater. Uh, my wife obviously danced here, so you know she's back home too. And both of our families are born and raised here, so it's, it's just good to be home and back at a place that we both care about. Did you look around when you were a student there and go, you know, I'd like to coach here someday, or did would have that would have would that have sounded like a pipe dream? No, I definitely did. I always had big dreams. Uh, that was just kind of what what drove me was just the the dreams that I kind of set for myself. Uh, even as a young coach, as a 17 year old, when I started started this deal, so I always had dreams to be the head coach here. All right, uh, signing day, the early signing period came, and uh, you know everybody's obviously thrilled with the classes they got. But how did that go for you? kind of making that transition on the fly, getting hired, then putting a staff together, and then here comes signing day. I mean, kind of like getting thrown into the deep end with like a, a weight attached to you. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was uh, it was definitely, I mean, I think we had seven kids committed at the time, and they had four kids in the prior class. So we definitely knew that we had to get the back end, the young, the youth, the roster uh, changed in terms of get more guys in there. So we definitely made a priority to, for high school kids. And then the transfers, you know, we took a good amount of transfers, but uh, those transfers, a lot of those guys have three or four years left because we did have a void in the roster uh, for this next coming up sophomore's class. Uh, so we had to fill that, that void with some guys that were freshmen at other schools that went in the portal with some tra- JUCO kids that have three years left. We had to kind of fix that void in the roster to get our numbers right. So it was – it was a whirlwind. A lot happened fast, but I think our coaching staff did a good job and and got good kids. I think that was the key for us is the culture. We got good kids who are going to come in here to compete. You went through this as the offensive coordinator at Oregon just a year ago with Dan Lanning coming in and kind of, you know, the whirlwind that he went through. Did you learn something in watching him and being part of that that you applied this time around? Yeah, it was a great learning experience for me last year because Coach Lang was obviously not there for the first month. Uh, he was still back in Athens. So for me, I kind of got to meet with the players and, and get around the players and see how the operation was going to happen and kind of be boots on the ground uh, there in order. So it was a great experience for me uh, last year, and uh, I had the same situation uh, at Florida State as well. So uh, I've been blessed to have been through that situation a few times. So I kind of knew exactly how to plan of how I wanted to attack it. You know the conference. You've coached in it. You've seen it. You know, you grew up in it. You, you know, it, it looks like this bowl season and a bunch of 10-win teams. It's a good time to be in the Pac-12. What do you think of the conference? And how much are you paying attention to the bowl games? Are you watching Washington, Oregon, UCLA? You you watching these teams play? Oh, for sure. I mean, I love this conference. Uh, this is, I mean, it's it's showing this is one of the most competitive conferences in college football this year. Uh, the offensive firepower, and what is funny is, you know, you look at the statistics, and there's a lot of offensive teams in the top five to ten in college football that are from this league, and then you get the defenses and how much success they've had in this bowl season. It just shows you how competitive this league was this year. Uh, I think somebody mentioned it the other day. This could have been the best this league's been in ten years. And uh, just coming here from other conferences, uh, this league was impressively talented uh, across the board this year. And there, there's no gimmies. And I think that's the hardest thing is this league every single week 
you know, you could get beat. Uh, and it's a challenge to show up every single week and have to be a, playing your A game. And that's why I don't think anybody still, nobody's gone undefeated in Pac-12 play uh, for that reason. You guys, uh, at your introductory news conference, you were passionate, you were fired up, you talked about recruiting that area and keeping kids from Arizona home. Um, you know, huge population base there. Then you went out and hired a staff that really is homegrown. You've got guys that you have coached with and played for and been around. How important is that familiarity for you in building a staff? Oh, it's huge. And I think the key in college football is you want people who want to be at a school. You want people who have a pride in it because I'm living testimony crap. I was at four, three schools or four, however many schools in six years moving across the country because that's part of, of it. And I wanted a staff that wanted to be here. I wanted a staff who woke up every day and this was their dream job. That way when we go and recruit a kid, they know that our running back coach is going to be here. Our head coach is going to be here. Our tight ends coach is going to be here. Our D-line coach is going to be here. Our defensive coordinator was born and raised here. Like, I want guys that wake up and that walk into this building and say, man, am I blessed to be here. That's players, that's coaches, that's everybody. And I think I was blessed that there's enough guys that are really, really good coaches. I mean, Coach Ward was, you know, one of the best coordinators in this league last year, and he happened to be from – he used to deliver water bottles to the stadium, you know. So it's one of those deals where I was blessed that there was a lot of good coaches at a lot of good locations and, and other schools that wanted to be here and wanted to come home. When a coach takes over a program, you're in a you're in a strange position because you know you come through the door and you want to upgrade the talent, you want to upgrade the depth, but you don't want to kill the guys that are on the roster that are coming back. So it's not like you go, hey, these guys aren't good enough. How do you manage the the returning players that? you need next season, and how do you keep them engaged when they're playing for a guy who didn't recruit them? I think it's just be honest with them. Hey, listen, uh, we're going to compete here, and we're, be ready to put in the work. I think that's been – we're going to – I always say we're going to have more fun working harder than anybody in the country. Like that's something that I take pride in is can you have fun, can you fall in love with the process of growth? Not, anybody can just want to be great. Right, but if you don't fall in love and and you know embrace the process of growth, like if you don't have fun getting better, then you're going to be miserable the rest of your life. Right, you're either going to be miserable because you didn't you didn't make out to be anything, or you're going to be miserable because you don't like what you're doing. You better fall in love and learn how to enjoy and have fun getting better and working your butt off. And I think that's been the message, everybody, is get ready to have more fun working harder than you've ever worked because that's the goal, that's the challenge. Can we help make each other better to get this place where we need to be? You, uh, you are a lot of fun to watch coach and call plays this year at Oregon. Uh, how, how enjoyable was that experience for you having Bo Nix? And, and it looked like midseason you guys were just popping up 40 points a game like it was no sweat. Yeah, it was that was so much fun. That entire team, I can't mention names because of NCAA rules, but all those guys, man, they're, they're the reason I'm here. There's no bones about it. You know, those guys, the guys at Florida State, those are the, reason, those are the reasons I'm here uh, is because of those guys' success. And uh, I think we just had a lot of fun working hard and buying in and believing. And uh, it was unfortunate, obviously, you know, somebody, we, we, had, we had a few injuries down the stretch there that slowed us down because we were rolling pretty good there uh, for a while. 
uh, for a long, and, and you know we finished pretty good, but you know we could have finished a little bit better, and and I wish we did, but that's just you know it's part of it, and I had a blast, man. That that's a that was an awesome, 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 awesome year for me. What does that feel like when you're calling a game and everything's in rhythm and everything seems to be working and you're just having fun? Because there were some games midseason where you were throwing to offensive linemen and Bo was running the ball and, uh, you know, obviously you were spreading the ball around the field. It just looked like you were having fun playing a video game up there in the press box. Yeah. I mean, I think for us that's what it's about, you know, is we wanted to have as much fun being sound as you could be. And if you can get your guys to do creative things but explain to them that this isn't a trick, this is like sound football, because if this isn't there, we're going to do this. And I think that was the benefit of having a guy who I believe should be a first-round draft pick at quarterback, uh, who I firmly believe I think both my last two guys should be first-round draft picks. And, And those guys, when they take control of the game and you give them control of the game, then you can do more creative things. And I think that was the, the key to our success this year was the empowerment of the QB position to where those guys, and he could really take over and play the game comfortably, and it allowed me to call games extremely aggressively. I thought about you because in the Holiday Bowl, you know, it, it turns out Bo Nix makes the play call on the winning uh, you know touchdown. And I thought about a conversation I had with you midseason in which you said, look, I – you, you were giving autonomy to your players, and you were saying, hey, if you don't like what you see out there, you want to change the play, you can change the play. That That is a uh, comfortable position for a coach and a comfortable position for a player. No question, and I think that just comes with trust, you know, the, the trust that you built up through the work. And I think that is what certain guys deserve, certain guys who put in the work, certain guys who it matters to, you have to have trust in them as a coach to let them shine. You have to have trust in them as a coach to say, you know what, this is your game, not mine. You know, I'm up here in the box eating a hot dog, right? You're out there on the field making a play, (laughs) right? We should probably want to run the play you want to run as long as you've put in the work, as long as I have a reason for why you want to run it. If you give me a good reason, if you give me that you've put in the work and that you've proven it before, why would I not want you to, to, to take the snap with, with that empowerment? Uh, and that's just part of, you know, lo- you lose that control as a coach, but at the same token, you know, you gain a lot more control because you're letting the guy that matters be comfortable, and that's the most important thing. Yeah, confidence is comfort. Comfort is confidence. We're talking to Kelly, Kenny Dillingham, head coach, Arizona State. Uh, quarterbacks in the portal, it, you know, there was a week this year in the Pac-12 that 10 of the 12 schools – started a transfer. Kenny, is this just the way it's going to be? Are we going to see transfers coming in and, you know, maybe fewer schools really developing and keeping a guy for three or four years? Uh, I don't know. I think it's just going to be on a kid-by-kid basis. Uh, To be honest, school-by-school basis, I think the transfer portal has changed the game. And I definitely think in this league with, with predominantly good weather, and you know Arizona, Southern California, and up to up to Cali, you have good weather. You have a good league to play quarterback in. That this league has proven this is the league you want to play quarterback in. This is a style of play you want to play quarterback in. So it definitely is going to be intriguing for kids moving forward. When you see the success the quarterbacks have had in this league, why would you not want to be the next guy in it? You know. So I definitely there will be a trend. 
Uh, but I do still think there'll be high school kids, and there should be high school kids that come in, earn the job, win the job, and uh, and have success. Do you have a hard time though, talk telling a freshman, "Hey, be patient. I'm bringing a transfer in." That's a tricky conversation. It is. I think the key is just once again honesty. Tell a guy. I mean, I've brought in a transfer that hasn't won the job. I've brought in the transfers in my career that have won the job. I think telling the guy that we're going to play the best player. And I don't think, I think the quarterback gets the most pub about it, but I think that's going to be the philosophy that we have here always is if we can make our team better, we're going to bring in a player who we think can make them better. It's your job to put in the work, prepare, that way you're the player that makes us better. It's, it's not my job to, to play a player. It's your job to make me play you. And I firmly, and it's my job to help you become better, the best player you can be. It's your job to put in the work and become the player that you can be. So I can't leave you on the sideline. So I just think that's part of part of the game. I think everybody understood uh, you going home, being promoted from a coordinator to a head coach. Still, there were people who looked at the end of the season and said, "Hey, was Kenny Dillingham distracted?" What do you say to those people? <laughs> yeah, I was distracted only because I was all in. Like, I was so all in at Oregon, all in. I mean, for me, right, at that stage, I mean, I think we scored. We went into the – I mean, I think we had 30 points in two of the last three games versus uh, two of the best defenses in the league. And our quarterback got hurt in the second-to-last game. We had, And, uh, you know, second-to-last game versus Utah, we had 17 points in the first half. And then they realized that our quarterback didn't practice all week and couldn't move out of the pocket mm-hmm. and started playing house zero. Mm-hmm. And there's not, you know, it limits what you can do. But from a plan perspective, if you look at we played the Washington game and, you know, we shortened the game in the third quarter. Up and we, you know, we had a lot of success. We went up and down the field. And uh, in the third quarter, we shortened the game uh, with a long drive that we just, you know, our, we got hurt on the last drive at quarterback. Mm-hmm. And uh, otherwise, we could have ended it. And then, obviously, we scored 30-something points in the last game So with a quarterback who wasn't completely healthy. So to answer those questions, absolutely not. That's not what I'm about. I am about the people. And I was all in on trying to win a Pac-12 championship. I was all in on trying to go to the Rose Bowl. I was on it all in on trying to go to the Final Four. Uh, that's not how it played out. It sucked. But for me, not even close. I was as... The only thing that distracted me was the vision of being 11-1, and one, being 12-1, and one, and going to play the Final Four. Yeah, and I kept telling people, I said, look, if, if, if even if Kelly Dillingham says, hey, my aspiration is to be Arizona State's head coach one day, he doesn't accomplish that by looking bad in, in the last few games of the season. Like, it, it would have benefited you anyway to go out and put 40 or 50 points up. What happened in the Oregon Oregon State game? As you look back at that one, it sticks with a lot of Duck fans. Uh, help make sense of the second half there. Yeah, well, third quarter, we went, you know, we had a really good third quarter. Uh, if you look at, you know, us, we, we scored points in the third quarter. Uh, fourth quarter was a struggle for us. We missed an opportunity on a third and medium where the linebacker makes a great play. We call a stutter and go in the slot, makes a great play, batting the ball down, which would have been a, probably a 50-yard gain to, to uh, a tight end. Uh, and then we field position kind of we struggled with field position in that quarter. I think we got the ball on the one, got the ball on the five, uh, which obviously when you face a really good defense, you know Oregon State was a you know they were only giving up 13 points a game, 
their last six games, and we scored 30-something. And uh, so the fact that, you know, we got the ball backed up was it was a struggle for us to move the ball down the field, and then we did move the ball all the way down the field. And, uh, you know, we, we couldn't punch it in. We got the ball on the five-yard line. We got into big people, and we pretty much tried to play mono-e-mono football, four plays from the five, let's run it four times, get a yard and a half to play. And uh, those guys stepped up. And uh, I definitely could have done a better job game planning that situation and, and putting our guys in probably a, a better situation, not just a one-on-one situation, but I could have probably done a better job trying to get a, a plus one or maybe in hindsight doing something different because it didn't work. But I wanted to lean on our big guys in that situation. But, you know, I think other than those two to three drives we got backed up, I think we had a, a good amount of success. When did it hit you when you when you get to Arizona State? Was it the news conference? Was it – you walk into the office and realize that's your new that's your office uh was it you know being around your parents or, or your wife or her family when did it hit you that hey this is this thing's come full circle for you yeah it was the news conference you know i went to the news conference obviously bald like a little baby on there for about uh for about three <laughs> minutes but once once i got through that but that was just so emotional for me because you know i sat there and you know there was a kid i played little league baseball with in the back with his with his family there was a guy that came into my wedding uh, who was sitting in the corner. I didn't know he was coming. There was my family who was there. There was my wife's family. There were all these people that I had known uh, for my entire life that randomly were there. And it was just a, uh, a very – that was when it hit me. And that was the, really the, the time it hit me because after that I've been moving and grooving and I haven't really had time to look back or breathe. So uh, that was really the, those three minutes were really when it hit me. It's interesting because I've seen guys who have said, other head coaches who have said, I don't want to coach in, in at the school that I went to. I don't want to come home. It adds a level of scrutiny. There, other people say, no, I embrace it. Be, like Jonathan Smith, I understand it. I know, I know who they are. Um, it, you strike me as, hey, I understand it. I know what this place is, guy. No question. Well, I think this city is so unique because it's it's growing and it's a melting pot of different people. You know, it's people from the Midwest, it's people from Arizona, people from California, people from the South, it's people from Texas, people from I mean, it's people from all over the country here. And if you don't understand what this city is, you're gonna miss out on what it has to offer. And I think that's what makes this place in Arizona State so special is the Phoenix metropolitan area. I always say the valley, activate the valley. And, you know, I've had people come to me and say, oh, activate the valley, you're only going to play Arizona kids. Not even close to what activate the valley means, but that's what some teams are doing to, like, negatively recruit against us. Activate the valley means let's get one of the largest metropolitan areas to get all in on our program. Let's get 55,000 people out to the games and have unbelievable tailgates. Let's create a college atmosphere in this unbelievable city that NFL players come to retire in, right? Let's, that's what Activate the Valley means. It means let's get the city all in behind this program, right? Because if we do, holy cow. Well, I mean, this, this place can be special. Yeah, and I think it's an advantage. I even had uh, the, the Sun, Sun Angel Collective uh, you know, asked to come on the show because they know there are Arizona State alumni that are in the state of Oregon that, you know, the, the show broadcasts across the state. So uh, you have an advantage with a huge alumni base that is around the, you know, the western part of the United States in particular, but it's an advantage that maybe some others don't have. And 
you know, I, I, Kenny, I'm excited for you. I think a lot of people are excited for you. It was a lot of fun to watch your teams play. Will Will you call the plays? Will the offense look similar at Arizona State, or how will that work for you? Have you figured that out? It'll look very similar, but I will not be calling the plays. Uh, Coach Baldwin will be our play caller at Pacific Northwest. Should know him extremely well. Yep. Obviously won a national championship up at uh, as the head coach of Eastern Washington. Yeah, I think it's really. I think your staff. I'm looking at it, and I see. You know, there's some gray hair on the staff, which I like. And you've got, you know, the young guys recruiting and enthusiasm, and obviously the connections to that area. It makes sense what you did there, Kenny. Thank you for joining us. I'll catch up with you uh, probably at media day, closer to the season. We'll talk to you down the road. Sounds good. Thank you. Want to know what you thought of that, Kenny Dillingham, Arizona State head coach, says he was not distracted down the stretch. Do you believe him? I don't blame Oregon fans who saw the second half of the Civil War football game and went, hey, man, that didn't look like the rest of the season. Well, part of it, I think, uh, related to the fact that Bo Nix was not healthy. And part of it related to the fact that Oregon State is damn good at home. Let's give the Beavers some credit, too. Virtually unbeatable at home. USC got them. And in the last two seasons, that's the only loss Oregon State has had at home. And USC got them by three. 503-417-7575. 503-417-7575. Tell me what you took away from that interview. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Well, you heard Kenny Dillingham, the Oregon, former Oregon offensive coordinator in the last segment, talk about his time at Oregon, the end of his time at Oregon, and the beginning of his time at Arizona State. I want your phone calls. What did you make of that? 503-417-7575. Do you believe him when he says he was all in? Uh, do you believe him when he says that uh, if he was distracted by anything, it was he was distracted by the idea that uh, he was all in? Uh, Stephen, what did you make of that interview? Yeah, I thought it was uh, very interesting to hear him say, you know, you asked him the question of what was the difference in that fourth quarter, the second half of that Civil War game, and he basically said all it was was field position. Like, he didn't take any of the blame or really question any of the decisions that happened for the Oregon offense. He said, well, we got the ball at the one and inside the five and at the seven, and it was just Oregon State made a good play. I thought the fact that he didn't really take any type of uh, blame and said, you know, nothing was different, I thought that was very interesting. Um, but I also took away that he is very – very emotional, right? And you could tell that by the press conference. You can tell how emotional he is uh, just listening to him talk about Arizona State and the love that he has for that program. Yeah. So I, I think, like, it was always we always kind of talked about We touched around it when Arizona State fired Herm Edwards. Well, Kenny Dillingham is going to be an option. I think it should have been even more obvious the entire time that he was the option because that love that he has, like, you could tell that is his dream job, and like no matter what happens, if he's successful at Arizona State, he's going to stay there because he doesn't want to leave. Yeah, and I think too that like, I mean, tell me if you're wrong, but I I hear a young head coach when he's talking. It, it, this isn't like a guy who has been at it for decades and decades and has fielded a lot of hard questions. I did feel him get a little defensive when I asked the question, and and he went back to the kind of the idea like, no, 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 I I was all in. If anything, I was distracted by being all in. Like, come on, yeah. like, you know, come on. You can't do that. You can't tell me that he wasn't at least a little bit scattered in thought. But I don't think the problems for Oregon down the stretch came on the uh, on the offensive side of the ball. I mean, they they had defensive problems in the Oregon State game. 
That was the second half. Oregon State didn't have to throw the ball. Oregon State just ran it down their throat. I think it was really kind of interesting to watch that, uh, you know, develop and unfold. And I don't blame Duck fans who are upset at him. I think he's I think he's going to do a good job at Arizona State. I think it's a tough conference to be coming into right now. Look at all these nine and ten win teams that are out there. Yeah, uh, I think he has a good plan. I like that he's hired coaches that are from the Phoenix area. Um, I think Kenny Dillingham will be fine. Uh, I I also don't think that you know Oregon or Oregon State are that worried about Arizona State right now. I mean, you've just seen a revolving door of coaches that have come through that program, and nobody has really maximized it. Uh, 503-417-7575. What did you think of the interview? I want your feedback. Coming up at 4 o'clock, we'll talk to Sean Hyken, who covers the Blazers. What is going on with Gary Payton II? We'll get to the bottom of it. Leave it here. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Huge upset yesterday in high school boys basketball as West Lynn High School in Jackson Shellstad knocked off Bronny James and Sierra Canyon. Uh, beat them pretty good in the Les Schwab Invitational out in Hillsboro. Uh, they advanced to the final uh, championship uh, matchup against uh, the number one team of the country. Should be fun. Uh, Jackson Shellstad in the postgame after the 86-69 upset of Sierra Canyon. Talked about. It's a great feeling. Uh, I don't think really a lot of people thought we would win that game. Uh, we believed in ourselves, so we came out and played our game. We, I think we were just hungry, and that showed, and that's why uh, I'm so proud of this team. We came a long way from our first couple games, but uh, I mean, we're hungry and we want to show people that. It's cr- that was the best atmosphere I've ever played in, hands down. Uh, I mean, I'm so glad I'm, I chose to go to University of Oregon and I can keep playing in front of my home, home state. You heard those chants, those defensive chants were shaking the whole the whole gym. And, I mean, that was special. It's good to know that Oregon has our back in this tournament. Entire gym shaking. Uh, Jackson Shellstad and Adrian Mosley. Uh, up to the task last night. Mosley scored 28. Shellstead had 38. Uh, really interesting um, stat in the game. I guess it's a stat that Sierra Canyon started two players who are six foot eight, and they bring a six foot nine player off the bench. West Lynn's two tallest starting players are both six foot three. Mark Hamper, who's headed to Idaho on a football scholarship and Sam Levitt, who's headed to Michigan State to play quarterback, are both 6'3". Now, what Sarah Canyon doesn't know is that Hamper Hamper's, Hamper might be the most versatile, next most versatile athlete in the state, aside from maybe Jack Coletto. Like, he could play offense, he could play defense. I know Oregon and Oregon State both were recruiting Hamper, and he ended up in Idaho because he's really a guy – that the I think the major colleges couldn't figure out what position he would play. Is he a defender? Is he an outside linebacker? Is he a running back? Is he a tight end? You know, I I expect Hamper to be one of these players who goes and plays in the Big Sky for a year or two, and then jumps in the transfer portal and ends up somewhere like Oregon State. Um, Sam Levitt, really good athlete, and heading to Michigan State in the Big Ten to play quarterback. So it's not like Sierra Canyon had. 
you know, uh, their six foot eight, six foot eight, six foot nine lineup against two uh, players that were six inches shorter who were stiffs. Like Hamper and Levitt are good athletes, and Jackson Shelstead and Mosley are as good a one-two punch as you're going to find um, in in the state. Like Shelstead, what he's doing might be that might have been the best performance i heard uh, eric vukla the former longtime westland coach who coached peyton pritchard among others uh tweeted out like was that the best performance that we've seen kevin love kyle singler peyton pritchard jackson shellstead like you know ha- was that the best performance the fact that that's even a question is remarkable Really good high school basketball, and Westland will get an opportunity in the Les Schwab Invitational uh, to uh, play for the championship. When is that championship game? Do we know, Stephen, when the championship game is going to take place? Um, I should know. I think it is tonight, but I'm not positive on that. I'm going to look at it right now. I'm going to pull it up. So I, the, you know, it it's really just interesting to kind of see what what's going to happen, who's going to play. I'm going to pull it up right yeah, now. It's, but it's uh, tonight, 8:45. Okay, late night, Friday night. Home court advantage, no doubt for the uh, for the uh, you know Westland Lions, but uh, an opportunity to mix it up against the number one ranked team in the country, Duncanville, in the championship game tonight at 8:45. Uh, Sierra Canyon will be playing Bishop Gorman in the third place game that is taking place, uh, I believe, tonight as well at 7:15. So it'll go 7:15. Bishop Gorman and Sierra Canyon, and then 8:45 right after Duncanville and West Lynn, and in a huge game for West Lynn and uh, and Jackson Shellstead, who's uh, done some real good things already in his in his high school career. Uh, brings us to our big splash. It's the one thing you need to know. This is the one thing you absolutely need to know today. Look, look, look at it. Where down there? The big splash. Well, let's be real. The Pac-12 conference was on a roll until today. Conference was three and or three and one in bowl games after Washington beat Texas in the Alamo Bowl. Michael Penix Jr. to Jalen McMillan. Penix looking that way to the slant, and it is caught. A touchdown for McMillan. Got it right on the shoe tops. An eight-yard strike from Penix to Jalen McMillan. There it is. Uh, Washington beating Texas in the Alamo Bowl. Then came today. UCLA looked good early, but wilted in the Sun Bowl in the second half. 20 unanswered points for Pitt. Pitt goes on to a 37-35 game that came down to a game-winning field goal. Not to tip anybody if he hits his field goal. Up and It was uh, an improbable victory for Pitt. Ben Sauls kicked five field goals, his final field goal with four seconds left after UCLA had driven down to take a 35-34 lead with 34 seconds to go. Dorian Thompson-Robinson out in the second half with a back injury. It was Ethan Garbers who led a 70-yard drive late 
Bruins had an opportunity, probably should have won this game. They're going to kick themselves. But uh, the Pac-12 Conference doing very well up until that game. 3-2 and two now in bowl games with three games to go. Uh, no, two games to go. Two games to go. Uh, both of those games on Monday, it'll be the Rose Bowl with Utah and Penn State. I like Utah in that game. And it'll be the uh, Cotton Bowl with USC and Tulane. I'm picking Tulane to win that game outright. By the way, Stephen, I'm going to knock on wood here. I am uh, with UCLA losing. I had Pitt in the points in my picks. I'm 5-0 and now. Uh, I, I thought UCLA would win the game, though. I had them winning a very close game. Instead, they lost a very close game. But So I'm 4-1 straight up. I'm 5-0 and against the spread. I'm going to, on the commercial break, pack up and go to Vegas. I'm wasting my time doing this radio show. Yeah, no I big, should be professional gambler. No big deal. Just throw that in right at the end of the segment here. Uh, say that you're undefeated <laughs> against the spread. But, no, I mean, you've been, uh, you've been right on all season, pretty much with the Pac-12. So uh, continue the dominance in the bowl games. And, uh, you know, the fact that you're four and one straight up and five and zero against the spread is even more impressive to me. I don't know. I, 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 when UCLA took the 35, 34 lead, I, I went, Hey, that's exactly how I drew this thing up. You know, I had a, I had a little more points in the game, but that's how I drew it up. Them winning, but winning kind of, uh, you know, uh, ugly, not impressively, uh, pit playing closer than maybe they should have. But uh, in the end, uh, I had it 30 to 28. That was my pick. It ended up uh, 38-35, Pitt winning. But uh, were you surprised a little bit with the dominance of Washington over Texas? I was surprised how how harmless Texas looked. I thought Texas would be. I had it 41-35. That was my pick. I had Washington winning, but I thought Texas would be just a little tougher. They were just not very dynamic. And, in fact, in the first half of the game, I was like, did Southwest Airlines lose their luggage? Did they lose their offense on the travel? I don't know. Coming up, Sean Hyken. What's going on with the Blazers? We're going to find out. Stay tuned. B-F-F-T. From the Pack West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Well, what's happening with the Trailblazers? Whenever I want to know, Sean Hyken's my go-to. The Rose Garden Report, if you're not already subscribed and reading him, you don't know what's happening. Sean Hyken does a terrific job covering the Blazers. He had a piece earlier this week that really caught my attention because Blazer fans were super excited when Gary Payton II was, uh, you know, going to be part of the team. Like, you know, hey, he really helped the Warriors on their way to a championship. Could he be uh, part of the depth answer with the Trailblazers? Well, he has yet to play for the Trailblazers. And a lot of questions swirling. What do we know? Is he going to play? Is he 10 days away? Is he practicing? Sean Hyken has the answers. Plus, I'll ask him, will the Blazers be a buyer or a seller or an observer at the trade deadline? And how are they feeling about the start to this season? Joining us now, the uh, brain behind the Rose Garden Report, Sean Hyken with us. How should Blazer fans be feeling, Sean, at this point of the season? Uh, State of the Union. John, I think on the whole, they should be feeling okay about where they're at. I've been saying really since the summer when the schedule came out, when you look at the schedule, you look at how 
tough it was early on. How like look, I'll, I'll, I'll put it this way: they're in Golden State tonight. That's their last game of the calendar year of 2022. That will be their 21st road game of the season. So they will have already played over half of their road schedule for the year by the time the calendar flips over to 2023. They've already had two of their three six-game road trips as well as another four-game road trips. So, you know, the, the, the flip side of that schedule is that coming up, basically, they're, they have a, like one three-game road trip next week. I don't have a schedule in front of me. But other than that, they're basically home the entire month of January. They're home a lot before the All-Star break. They're home a lot. They have one more six-game road trip later on. But They've also already played all of the, you know, a, a, a lot, a lot of the like the good teams in the West. Like they've already played Phoenix every all the times. Like they're done with Phoenix. They played Denver three or four times. They played Dallas twice. Like they've played a lot of these teams that you know, they might potentially be facing in the playoffs. And so what I said when I looked at the schedule and kind of saw that it was going to be so front loaded with tough games and you know, tough opponents and road games, I said the whole time if they could get to five hundred at Christmas they're in really good shape. And here we are with it about to go into the new year and they're 18 and six, 16, two games above 500 with all the injuries they've had. So I think just overall, all things considered, they have to be feeling pretty good about where they're at. The, you know, I, I always say you gotta, you gotta see 25 or 30 games. We've seen now 34 games. What do you know about this team that maybe you didn't know in training camp? Really still not a lot. And I don't think they do either just because they've had so many guys in and out of the lineup. Damian Lillard missed some time a couple of different times with the calf injury. Uh, you know, they still, you know, they're still really waiting. You know, and I'm sure we're going to get to this. It's kind of the story with the team right now. They're still waiting to see what's going to happen when Gary Payton the second comes back, when that happens, and how he's going to help. You know, different. Like it, literally, every single one of their rotation players has missed at least one game at one point or another with an injury. Now Justice Winslow has been their sixth man for most of the season is out for a couple of weeks, at least probably more than that. But uh, I think there's still kind of like, I think like there's a few things they know about. They know how obviously Dane is Dane. Like he's still the same guy that he was before the surgery. Uh, Anthony Simons looks like he's, you know, taking another leap. Like people kind of thought he was going to be when he got that contract. Jeremy Grant has been a pretty much a perfect fit, and he's been exactly as good as they thought that he was going to be when they traded for him. And beyond that, like, you know, Josh Hart has kind of brought what everybody expected him to bring. But beyond that, it's still a whole lot of, I think, evaluating how different guys fit together. Shaden Sharp is still kind of a mystery. He looked great early on in the season, and then he's hit kind of a rookie wall that you would expect. Uh, they're still kind of figuring out what they have with some of these other rotation players. And this Little has been out for a while, and that's a guy that they just signed to an extension. He has a hip thing that he theoretically should be back mid-January. So it's still kind of a lot of uncertainty, but I think overall they feel pretty good about like the core of guys that they have that they know they want to build around long-term. It's just a matter of like evaluating the rest of it and seeing who's a long-term fit and who isn't. The the piece you wrote about Gary Payton II was interesting to me because there is, you know, people ask me, is he ever going to play? What's the story? And it doesn't seem like the messaging from the team is matching sort of the messaging we're getting uh, you know, from other sources. What is going on in your mind with Gary Payton II? Well, I knew I would tell you. I, I, would ag- I would agree with you that I don't think the organization has done a great job of controlling the messaging here or being transparent, which honestly, I think overall, you know, we're about a year on from Joe Cronin taking over as GM and then like the new PR, like the PR staff has completely flipped over. I overall think that in the last year, the organization has done a much better job of being transparent about this kind of stuff than the previous 
regime, if you will. And so the whole way that this Gary Payton thing has been handled, that's why it's sticking out because it's so at odds with, you know, the way, you know, they have been a lot better about this kind of stuff. But from the beginning, like even just, you know, they announced that he was, you know, he had had the surgery in July. They announced that in mid-September for some reason. I still haven't got, I've asked, I still haven't gotten a good answer as to why they didn't just announce it when he had the surgery in July. And then I think the other mistake they made was in their initial press release, and this is also something that both Gary Payton and Joe Cronin said on Media Day in September, they said that he was going to be out for the start of training camp and the preseason, but he was going to be good for the start of the regular season. That's what everybody said. And then it was just kind of, He'll be reevaluated in two weeks. He'll be reevaluated in two weeks. He'll be reevaluated in two weeks. The last time that he's gotten, you know, they've given us an official update, like in a press release or anything like that, has been, you know, it was November 18th, so we're talking almost six weeks. They la- he hasn't been available to talk to us in the media since November 1st, which he's not, by law, by, by rule, by league rule, he's not required to, but I would think it would be a good idea at, at, at some point to kind of let him speak for himself and see what's going on. The part of it that's really interesting is that earlier this week we asked Chauncey Billups about it at practice, and Chauncey pretty much outright said that he's been cleared by the medical staff. And so it's just a matter of whenever he comes to them and says, I'm good to go, they'll, like, from their standpoint, they'd be happy to throw him out there. If he, if he came to them, they, it's probably too late for tonight because they have to, they already had to put in their injury reports, but. Their next game is here in Portland on Monday against Detroit. If he goes to them on Monday and or you know in the next couple of days and says I'm good, they'll play him like that. That part of it, like they're not holding him back. There have been other times this season where guys have wanted to play and the the organization has had to say no. Like a couple, like both of the times Damian Lillard sat out with the cap thing. He wanted to come back a week before he ended up coming back, and the organization and the medical staff had to be like, no, 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 you're not going to play. They've had to like force guys to sit out. It, I don't. I don't know if I knew what was going on with the Gary Payton thing. I would tell you. It sounds like to me like he just you know he's trying to make sure he's a hundred percent comfortable and, to, and that he's not going to re-aggravate this if he plays. Because you have to keep in mind the thing with him. This is the same surgery that uh, Damian Lillard had uh, last year that shut him down for most of the year, and that Nasir Little had at one point last spring. But Gary Payton has had this surgery multiple times in his career, so it's like a recurring thing with him. And I think he feels a little bit like, you know, if I play, am I going to re-aggravate it? Like what? Like I, 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 so I, I don't know what I don't know what's going on. It seems like he's the only one that uh, is really going to be able to tell you when he's going to play or what's going on. But we haven't really heard from him lately, so I, that's all I really got for you on that. Sean Hyken, the Rose Garden Report, is our guest. He's all over the Blazers. We're 41 days away, Sean, from the trade deadline. Um, and, and, I, and I know this question is, you know, it's fluid because you don't know Gary Payton second. You know, you have some pieces here. You haven't seen them all together. Is your sense, though, that Joe Cronin will be aggressive? Will they be a buyer? Will they be a seller as they were with, uh, you know, sort of dumping salary last year or will they be a spectator because they just they kind of just don't know and they haven't had everybody on the same page yet if i had to guess and it's it's very early and i was i was just at the g-week showcase last week in las vegas where a lot of this kind of trade chatter bubbles up and a lot of stuff starts you know getting talked about and things are pretty quiet right now not just with the blazers but all over the league because the standings are so jumbled up right now that every team feels like they're a week, you know, one good week or one winning streak away from being in the mix. And so 
teams have kind of, it's been kind of slow to develop as far as seeing who might be available and which teams might be buyers and sellers. If I had to guess, just based on the way that Joe Cronin has done things since he took over and also just kind of the messaging that he's put out, he's been very clear about he doesn't think that this roster as it exists right now is good enough to be a contender. He's even, even like best case scenario, everybody's healthy. He still feels like this roster is a work in progress and that there are a couple of pieces away and that, you know, he's going to be aggressive in trying to make those upgrades. If I had to guess, I think that would lean towards if he sees a deal out there that he likes to make an upgrade. I, you know, whoever that may be, I, I, again, it's been pretty slow to kind of figure out who's going to be available or what's going to be out there or what's on the block or any of that. But if I had to guess, I would lean towards he's going to look to upgrade the roster and do things to meaningfully take steps forward as opposed to maybe what happened last uh, deadline, which was a totally different thing because Dane was shut down for the year and they just kind of needed to, you know, undo a lot of the previous general manager's work in order to be able to move forward. They're not in that position anymore. We, uh, you and I have both kind of messaged each other and are followed followed closely as the Phoenix Suns were were sold. And, you know, we, we saw the $3 billion offer out there and trying to make sense of what's going to happen with the Blazers. Do you have a sense or have you learned anything on the potential sale of this franchise one day? I mean, it's got to happen at some point, right? That's in the Paul Allen Trust. I don't know the date. I don't know the sell-by date. I don't know when it has to happen. I do know that pretty much everybody around the league had been waiting to see what the Suns go for because that was going to reset the market in the same way that when the when Steve Ballmer bought the Clippers in 2014 after the Donald Sterling thing, that you know he paid $2 billion, which was a, by, by far a record for an NBA team at that point. And then you see what NBA teams have gone for since then. And I think everybody thought that with – you know, Phoenix being, you know, a major media market and a contending team and with all the, you know, the TV deal coming up and the expansion money probably coming up a, a couple of years after that, uh, after 2025, that the Suns would set a new benchmark and, like, they would reset the market in the same way. And the fact that it came in at a $4 billion valuation, which, like, now we're getting into, like, the territory of what NFL teams sell for. Like, that's way beyond what any NFL, NBA team has been worth. And so that's one thing I think people were – waiting on and now that's that that's out of the way i think other teams or other franchises that might be up for sale might things might get moving we're there you know we're seeing a report i think in the last week or so uh mark lazary one of the two primary owners of the bucks is talking about wanting to sell his stake which should probably you know it's not going to probably get the same amount of money that phoenix did because you know the phoenix is a much bigger market than milwaukee but you know it would be i would think comparable to what Portland is going to get whenever that is. I've said the whole time, I think that uh, Jody Allen and Burt Cole and like the Vulcan, you know, operation, they would like to hang on until after the uh, new TV deal at, at, at the minimum. I mean, the expansion thing might be too far out, but at the minimum, the TV deal that's going to come in in 2025, which is going to be even more lucrative than the previous one which, you know, spiked the salary cap in 2016 to the point where the Warriors could sign Kevin Durant. Like, it's, it's going to be even more money than that coming into the league. And so I think they would like to hang on until they can get their piece of that and then cash out. Because the thing you have to remember is that in the Paul Allen Trust, not only does the team have to be sold at some point, but that the money from the sale has to go to whatever charitable, uh, philanthropic uh, efforts uh, Paul Allen has designated for. So it's not even just that, like, Jody and Burke can sell the team, and then they get to pocket however many billions of dollars it goes for. 
we're already kind of starting to see some other parts of his uh, trust get liquidated. His art collection got sold a few months ago. One of his super yachts has been sold. There's some real estate. So they're starting the process of selling the other stuff, but I think they would like to hang on until, to the Blazers until this new TV deal comes in so they can get their piece of that and then cash out. And then I think the NBA would probably like for it to get done sooner. But it's all, it's all just a matter of, like, who, you know, who has the leverage, you know, who can negotiate. You know, maybe they get an offer that blows everybody else away. But even then, like, I don't know whether there's a formal – I have not seen the Paul Allen Trust. The only person – the only two people that can probably answer this question are Jody Allen and Burke Cole, and neither of them are really available to media, you know, to, to us to talk to, not that we haven't asked. But, like, I think uh, – I don't know whether there is, like, a formal auction process if, or if somebody can come in and just say, uh, you know, I'm going to pay this, and they say, good, done. Because with the Denver Broncos, which is another team that recently was sold out of a trust that it was held in when their previous owner passed away – there was a formal auction process that it had to go through, and they couldn't just handpick an owner. So I don't know how all that stuff works without seeing the actual legal documents, but I think that, you know, the sun sale was kind of one roadblock. Now everybody's seen what that goes for. That's kind of the new market or, you know, the, the kind of the new benchmark that teams are trying to, you know, use. And then I think this new media rights deal that's coming in in 2025 is going to be kind of the next checkpoint for that. Give me an idea here, because I think, you know, part of part of the fear of the average Blazer fan out there is that this team gets sold to somebody who wants to move it. I have tried to um, to uh, quiet those fears by telling people, look, if the NBA wants to expand to Seattle, wants to expand to Vegas, they're not going to let a team that is already working that has a viable building that has a fan base that has supported it they're not going to let a team cannibalize one of those expansion opportunities do you agree with me on that sean i don't really consider the idea of the blazers leaving to be a real thing like that's that's yeah like you said they have they're, they're like the idea they're like these small market success stories that the league loves to prop up as like it's not a major market, but, you know, they sell out, they have a good building, they have a great fan base, all this kind of stuff. And like you said with the expansion, like, I would be shocked if the like, – Adam Silver now has, like, he's kind of started moving it towards – you know, he's always said previously, like, expansion isn't even on the table, expansion isn't on the table, expansion isn't on the table. In the last month or so, I think he did a press conference at one of their, uh, like, their games in Mexico City or something. I don't remember exactly where it was that he did this. It was either that or, like, a board of governors meeting or something like that. But uh, he recently said that once the new TV deal comes in in 2025, then they are, are going to start looking at expansion. And everything that I've heard from, you know, for a couple of years solid is that it's already decided that the next two cities they expand to are going to be Seattle and Vegas. So I don't think that's really something that fans should worry about as far as the team moving. Yeah, and I think here uh, here he is talking on uh, the Dan Patrick Show. Here's Adam Silver, the commissioner. I think le enterprises naturally grow over time. And there's no doubt Seattle would be a great market. Las Vegas would be a great market. Um, there's there's state-of-the-art arenas in, in, you know, in, in, in both those communities. And so we'll look at it. It's, interestingly, it's, it's not on the front burner okay. for our league right now. And, and also... We're going to go through a new collective bargaining um, negotiation. I also think there's a lot of uncertainty in the media world right now. Um, all these new streaming platforms potentially interested in sports, so it's, it's hard to set the right value. I think that's something we're going to monitor as well. So nothing will happen in, in, in the short or medium term, but we'll turn back to it at some point.
Yeah, that kind of matches up with what you're saying there, Sean. And and but he says it's on the back burner. So what's on the front burner for this league? And in, in competitive, you know, not just you know TV deals, but competitively, is the stuff that's happening on the court helping the league? Is the league healthy as you see it? From what I understand, the two there's there's a few things that that like because right now and. He kind of alluded to it is that you know the new collective bargaining agreement with the players union is up soon. They the, the actual like the deadline to opt out for either side was originally uh, December fifteenth, so a couple of weeks ago. I think they mutually agreed to move that deadline back because they are you know they're they're still talking. I would I don't expect there to be any kind of work stoppage because I think both sides realize that they're all making so much money right now that it wouldn't make sense to put any of that in jeopardy. But from what I've heard the things outside of like the revenue split which is always going to be part of these things the three actual like substantive things that they're looking at that you know some sides want one thing some you know sides don't want something one of them is what they're calling they're they're, they're trying to to sell a hard cap which the players have always been vehemently opposed to they're trying to call it an upper spending limit now that's like the term that they've been putting out there on the ownership side so that's something that's going to have to be negotiated so i don't know how that's going to work but you know adam silver for a long time has wanted a mid-season tournament uh, of some sort and they've kind of been test driving that in the wnba and the g league to a certain extent and so that's something that i think he's going to keep pushing that is kind of a pet project of his and then the other thing that's going to be really interesting to see how this plays out is i think there's a mutual desire on both sides but the players and the owners to go back to you know to get rid of the age limit in terms of you know you have to be one year removed from high school in order to declare for the draft i think both sides kind of would like the idea of going back to you know you could you know like lebron james did or kobe bryant did or kevin garnett or any of these guys like you can go enter the draft right out of high school now and you don't have to play a year somewhere else in or even if it's like obvious that you're just like a one and done and you're going to go to the league as soon as you you know have the one year like i think that's something that's going to get fixed at some point so outside of just the revenue splits i think those are the three things that are on the front burner with these cba negotiations and then once they get past that then it's a tv deal that's going to have to come out that's you know renegotiating with espn and turner and then are you going to sell, you know, the rights to another rights package to Amazon or Apple or one of the streaming platforms? What are you going to do with League Pass? One thing that I thought was kind of interesting with, and this is getting a little bit into the weeds on like the business stuff, but I know that's something that you cover a lot, John, with the Pac-12 stuff. Is they re- for this season? They recently cut the price of League Pass by half. So now it's like a hundred. I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head, but it's like a hundred dollars for League Pass for the entire season as opposed to, I think it was like 200 or 250 before that. And I think the reason that they're doing that was because they want more, the total number of people to sign up and subscribe so that they can go to Amazon or Apple and say, hey, look, we have this many subscribers. Give us mm. this much money for the rights to it. So mm. yeah. I think that, you know, in addition to ESPN and Turner, one of the streaming platforms at least is going to get involved with these media rights, and that's going to result in even more money coming into the league. And then once all that hits, then I think they might start looking at expansion. Yeah, you're right. It's ninety nine ninety nine, and it's funny. the uh, The Sunday Ticket did the same thing. They dropped the prices, and they tried to encourage a bunch of students to sign up. And then they turned around and sold that to YouTube. So I'm sure there's uh, some genius in what they're doing there. Sean, you're doing a great job with the Rose Garden Report. For people who want to read it, you can go to the Rose Gar- RoseGardenReport.com is where you find all of his work. 
Uh, sign up, get the subscription there. I subscribe. Uh, if you want to know what's going on with the Blazers, Sean is the go-to there. Sean, thank you for joining us. Always good to talk to you, John. Good stuff there on the Blazers front. Steven, we got a lot to kick around on that front. Blazer fans, I want to hear from you. 503-417-7575 is the trade deadline's only 41 days away. I say only, but that's an eternity in the league. But uh, right now, do you have a sense on what this team even needs? Does it need a backup center? Does it need uh, a two-way player that can play on the wing? Do you need you know do they need to get better defensively? I have a hard time with it because Gary Payton II was supposed to be that defensive helper and give them some depth. And he hasn't played. And that and Justice Winslow's out, and Lillard's been in and out, missed 12 games. Uh, but you tell me where you are on that front. 503-417-7575. You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Forty-one days from the NBA trade deadline. I remember a year ago what happened. What happened a year ago? Uh, the Blazers made a bunch of deals. Looked like they were waving the white flag. Looked like they were just kind of shedding salary, and uh, you know, justifiably so. I think some fans were frustrated with the deals that were made. Here they are. They're you know, thirty-four games into this season. They're eighteen and sixteen, uh, ten and ten at uh, at home. Uh, they uh, you know, ten and ten on the road rather. Eight and six at home. Uh, they seem to be through the meat of their schedule and may have a productive month. That said, I don't trust them, Stephen. I know you don't trust them either. Uh, I kind of feel like they're going to end up flirting with the play-in game. And, uh, and, you know, for a lot of fans, that's enough. For me, I need a little more. I need a little more entertainment. I need a little more consistency. I need a little more fun from this team. But that said, if the trade deadline comes along, I think they have a problem because there there been so much interruption to their lineup with people coming and going and Lillard in and then out and Justice Winslow out and then, you know, where is Gary Payton the second? Like you kind of don't know who you are, so you don't know what's missing. So what do they do at the deadline? Do they need a backup center? Do they need a two-way wing player? Do they need a backup guard? Like, what do they need, Steven? Yeah, and it's tough because the salary cap issue that they have, you know, they're really close to the hard cap for their salary cap, so they can't really take on much money. It has to be basically a straight, even trade. And so what are you, you know, what are you trying to do here? If you're trying to upgrade the starting lineup, I think you're going at the three position over Josh Hart, but as Sean said, like, he's been pretty good all season long, and he fits well with what the Blazers are trying to do. So if you're Portland right now, I think that starting lineup is pretty solid, but the bench has been very bad lately, especially with all the health issues they've had. But it was one of the big weaknesses I thought coming into the season. So for me, when you're adding something off the bench right now, if I'm thinking at a playoff series, let's just say Portland somehow gets into the actual playoffs, the top eight teams, you're going to look to play eight, nine guys in the playoffs. There's about five, six-ish guys that I trust if Gary Payton – uh, the second is back on this team. So I think Portland's got to add a lot to the bench, you know, mostly a big, uh, a wing, and a guard. Like, I think they need to add all three off the bench because I don't trust anybody on this Trailblazer bench. There's really only six guys that I trust on the team right now. So, you know, it's like Sean said, though. It's tough to know because there's been so many injuries, but what I do know is this bench is not ready to be a playoff team yet. Do you, uh, do you see... 
pieces that are expendable that would be attractive to other teams. Because sometimes you're trading your problem for their problem, and I always kind of wonder, what do they have to give up? What are you willing to give up? Is there anybody you've given up on on this roster? Yeah, that's the tough part because you know Shaden Sharp is the one guy who has all the value, but I don't want to trade him. I think he has too much potential and is still so much unknown with him. You want to hold on to him. You know, Keon Johnson's a guy that has shown he can play a little bit in the NBA. I think he's still he's still a young player on a rookie contract. He may have a little value around the league, but after that, that's about it. And so, you know, Portland is really hamstrung with what they want to do salary cap wise after giving Nasir Little the contract extension, uh, signing Nurk to a big money deal. It's really going to be tough. I think a lot of the bench guys, a lot of the young guys, don't necessarily have a lot of value around the league. You know, Jabari Walker played good in summer league, but obviously not in the regular season, so he has no value. I think, John, it's really going to be tough to see who the Blazers are going to trade for, and if they do, it's going to be a lesser piece. It's going to be a role player. It's never going to be a guy that is inserted in the starting lineup. Let's go to the phone lines. Sean's in Sandy. Sean, what do you think? I don't like what Steve just said. That's bad news if we want to hang some banners. I don't want to get to the playoffs. I don't want to see just a little bit more. I want to see some championships. I want banners hanging up there. And we got to get bigger, faster, stronger. Our guards are too small, uh, small forward positions, too small. Yeah, Josh Hart's a good player, but, you know, uh, a bench player ain't going to win us a championship. And, and Josh Hart, I don't, I don't think he's, you know, the starter on a championship team. Yeah, I think we need to get uh, – we have to give up something good to get something good. And and I think, you know, it might be Anthony Simons. You know, I, I, you know, I like Ant, uh, but uh, you got to give up something good to get something good. And the Blazers are always afraid to make these big moves. You know, they do, they do a little tinkering around and uh, bringing these role players, you know. And it's been going on through this whole Damian Lillard, uh, this whole gener- – this what uh, – this whole genre, this whole Damian Lillard era, and it's just sad. It's sad for Dame. It's sad for the Blazer fans. You know, the first 30 years of this uh, Trailblazers organization, we were always contenders. We have been a contender since the year 2000. It's been going on 23 years that this has been something that I can say we're proud of. We were always one of the best teams. We got to do something. Blazers, stand up. Yeah, look, I think I think if you look at the Blazers players that have value, Stephen, tell me if you disagree. Uh, I'll start the list with Damian Lillard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to say Anthony Simons, Josh Hart, Jeremy Grant, Yusuf Nurkic has got value. I think uh, and then you start talking about players that have speculative value like Justice Winslow, Shaden Sharp, and maybe Nasir Little. Um, that group. I think that's your value. Those are the guys that other teams are going to look over and go, hmm, of the players on that list, Stephen, who are you okay parting ways with of those players I just mentioned? Because you said Shaden Sharp, you wouldn't give up on him yet too soon. I agree with you. Too much upside, too much talent, and he's on a relatively cheap contract. Of course other teams are going to want that because they go, hey, I could turn that into something big. What do you th- what do you see there? Yeah, I actually disagree with you. I don't know that how much value there is for Justice Winslow or Nasir Little. And the fact that I say that is because Nasir Little hasn't shown the ability to stay healthy in this league. Now, his contract isn't a lot, but based off his numbers and his production, he's, he doesn't earn that contract. He can't stay on the court. And Justice Winslow was a guy, was basically a throw-in in the trade 
uh, to the Clippers. Like all the Blazers wanted was that Keon Johnson value asset mm-hmm. and the draft pick. Winslow was basically thrown in there as a, a piece, like whatever. Here you go, and he's been better than expected. So I don't really know how much value those two have. He's on, but he's on an expiring contract, and that's what I mean. Like his, you know, I think he's making like four million, yeah. and his contract's expiring. That's going to be attractive yeah, to somebody. That, that that is a good point. It's one reason why I think for me, uh, you know, I'm always I'm always the guy that says. You have to consider trading everybody, including Dame, but I don't think that you ever trade Dame. I don't think that you trade Shaden Sharp. Everyone else, I think, is on the table, and that includes Anthony Simons, and that's the tough one for me is, you know, he, he his contract is going to be probably pretty good because he's such a young player and he shoots the ball so well, but I think there's a lot of holes in his game. I don't necessarily think he makes his teammates better. I don't think he plays great defense, and so I think if you're looking to trade and upgrade it's going to be a guy like Anthony Simons to fit a better role in this team. So I think really it's about Dame, it's Shaden Sharp, and that's about it for my uh, no-trade list. Let's go to Kyle, who's in Portland. Kyle, as we kick this around, go ahead. And I'm hoping that Cronin's smart and plays the long game. I know we want it now, but I think we're going to need a Chris Paul, Damian Lillard in three or four years. Uh, Sharp's going to have to be the new Anthony. Anthony's going to have to be the new Dame. Nurk's going to have to have less years on his contract to move it. Um, and I think our young guys are just going to have to develop into something we can trade. Um, and Nasir's going to have to play better than his contract. Like, I think it's going to be a while before you can make a home run move. And uh, I don't know. So I'm just going to enjoy it. And, uh, you know, I don't, I'm not expecting a championship for, yeah, for this year. I, I'm kind of with you. I, I'm with you, Kyle, because I don't think it's – feasible to go for it while they're simultaneously going, hey, we gotta, we're going to sell this team here in the next year, year and a half, two years, whatever the case, whatever their timeline is. I don't think that you can say, hey, we're all in, because when Paul Allen made all-in moves, it came with Bob Witsit saying to him, hey, we're close. We add this piece. I think it puts us over the top. And Paul was willing to be a taxpayer for that. But he wasn't willing to be a taxpayer to be the eight seed or the seven seed. You know, he was willing to go into and, and pay a penalty if you're going for it. And I think you need the entire franchise on the same page. And right now, I don't think they are. And it's why I keep coming back to the idea that, hey, they just need to be really entertaining. They need to be the Cirque du Soleil of the NBA. They need to put on a show every night that everybody knows is going to be good and fun and competitive, and they're you know maybe they go on a run, but I don't think we will mistake them for a team that's going to throw a parade at the end of the season. And and but I still think they could make a deal at the deadline. The problem being that, as Stephen has pointed out, Joe Cronin's going to have to make a deal that stays within the financial parameters of the roster and the team, and that's going to be tricky unless you're willing to give up Yusuf Nurkic or Anthony Simons or Damian Lillard, and then try to get a, a nice piece in return. Charlie's in Vancouver. Charlie, go ahead. Hey, John. Ha- uh, happy holidays to all you guys. Um, first of all, I feel sorry for Blazer fans who just feel it's championship or, boy, I'm disappointed because as a non-major market team, how often does that happen? I mean, if it was just so easy, if it was just as easy to say, oh, we got to be all in, well, teams will be all in. There's 32 other teams that are feel like that, and guess what happens every time a game happens? One team wins and one team loses, and everybody has professionals on their team. Um, I get frustrated also when I hear that Josh Hart is too small. 
the dude averages 10 rebounds a game. The height at our small forward position is not an issue, not a problem. Scoring at our small, and people who say that, well, we need more scoring and shooting at that position, well, no, because that's taken care of with our four, the guy who doesn't rebound but instead provides those other things. It's a game of chemistry. If we go out and get guys who can score more, that just means our scores score less. It's never you add somebody and everybody stays the same. And like Dane's going to want the ball less, like Anthony's going to want the ball less, like Grant's going to want the ball less. I think what Steven said was really smart about there are holes in Ant's game, and there are. Um, if we're going to have a not-trade guy, it's got to be somebody who plays defense first. People for, for at least defense along with it to where they're really good two-way players. We just seem to want that, hey, I need that high, high, high scoring guy, and, uh, yeah, he might play a little defense. No, it's not the way the sport of basketball works. It just frustrates the crap out of me listening to people think that that's the way it does work. Thanks for the yeah, time. I appreciate the perspective. Uh, I also think, you know, when you look at I, – I always try to think, like, who's the ideal player? that you would add to this Blazers roster that would make the Blazers better. And everybody, I think, for a decade has looked at the Warriors and gone, okay, how do you duplicate that? I think it's the wrong comparison. I think a couple years ago when we saw Miami advance to the Eastern Conference Finals, and I kind of looked at Miami and I was watching them play. I think it was they were playing Boston. And I was looking at Miami. They are you know, on their way to the Finals, and I was going, that's the model. Like, you know, they had a bunch of guys that defended, very athletic they weren't fun to play against. Like, you know, I feel like that Miami team was put together in a way that a lot of other teams could go, hey, that's the blueprint. Am I wrong there? I think you're right on. Uh, it's always been defense with the Blazers. You know, it's never been a question of can they score. It's always the question of how tough they are, how much can they play defense. And, you know, as much as I like Ant, with a Damon Ant backcourt, you're never going to get that toughness in the, on the defensive side of the ball. And so – no matter how good your offense is, they can be the best offense in the league, but when you're number 20 in defense, historically in the NBA, you can go back and look, you have to be top 10 in defense to win an NBA championship. So at some point, one of those guys has to become a really good defender, and if it doesn't happen, well, you could just say, well, the Blazers aren't going to win a championship. Yeah, and I think you you, you go from going, all right, are they going to win a championship to what could just make them better? Is there a guy who pops into your mind when I say, think of a player who could be available at the deadline that you add to this team, and, you know, I'm going to throw out a name, and you tell me if you're nuts, but if you put a guy like Jay Crowder on the Blazers roster, like, as it, if you could just add him to the team bus, are the Blazers better? Yeah, I think, like, a guy like that, you look at the Suns also, Cam Johnson, just the, fl in, the influx that the Suns have, we don't know what they're actually doing. So a guy like that, yeah, I think they do help because not only – especially Jay Crowder, like you're talking about, he provides a lot of toughness, clutch shooting. That's the type of stuff that Portland ha doesn't have. They don't have that guy that's going to get into you and you know start the fake fights that happen in the NBA. And Jay Crowder does that. So I think you're right on the track there. You know, A 6'5 to 6'7 athlete that can kind of shoot the three, can play some defense, that, that's another thing that you just can't get in the NBA. And Portland's been locking that for years. I want you to leave it here. you got the bald face truth. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game.
We got the best sound from all around coming up. We'll play Punch It Audio in the next segment. I want to take a phone call here. Mike in Oregon wants to talk about the Oregon Ducks. What's going on, Mike? John, I finally subscribed to your site. Thank you. Appreciate you. You're welcome. Yeah, and I love that song you guys played for the Blazers while they were in first place. It really made me laugh. Uh, I'm not a basketball guy, but quickly, the Ducks, I kind of have a sense that they're going to be a much more complete defensive team all of a sudden next year. Do you think that I'm crazy? They're showing signs, but what I see is that Lanning is retaking control of the defense. I don't know what that means for Tosh, but what are your thoughts on, on that? Yeah, I think they've got a young coaching staff. I think Dan Lanning, I think, uh, you know, Tosh Lapoy. I think uh, I think when you talk about the offensive staff with Will Stein, uh, I think you see Kelly, Kenny Dillingham. This is a very young coaching staff. I think we're going to have to watch them grow. I think that's the reality. I think we are watching them grow. I think we're watching them watch, make mistakes. This isn't Jonathan Smith, who went off to Idaho and was under Dennis Erickson and then went to Washington and was under Chris Peterson. You know, this is Dan Lanning, who was under Kirby Smart, and he's now all of a sudden he's in his first job, and I don't know if he's got a phone call he can make, and, you know, can he phone a friend? I, I, think, um, I think that you have to acknowledge that there's going to be some growing pains. I think you have to acknowledge we're watching a coaching staff that won 10 games get nitpicked in the offseason, and some of it is fair criticism. I think we can look at the Oregon game. We can look at the Washington game. We can talk about game management. I think we have to be fair. But I also think you can't lower the expectations for Dan Lanning. That coaching staff, especially on the defensive side of the ball, has to be better. I really am confused as I watched this season how bad they were at times on defense. And I want to do the same thing with Kalen DeBoer at Washington. You know, great offense, but he's an offensive-minded coach. I expected that. Dan Lanning... You know, supposed to be a defensive-minded coach. Defense was just it didn't show. So I want to see that in year two. I think that's a really important thing to see uh, in year two. And if Tosh Lapoy is not the answer, they're paying him too much money. Paying him, I think, one point seven million for a D coordinator. I know he's a great recruiter, got a reputation uh, of a guy who might who paints outside the lines a little bit. But in this NIL era, you you need to be aggressive, I guess. But I want to see that guy coach too. And that defense has got to show it. I was a little encouraged in the Holiday Bowl. As the second half of the Holiday Bowl, it looked like they made some adjustments. It was very encouraging. And so I want to see that next season. I want you to leave it here. Punch and Audio still ahead. The 5 at 5. What's your peeve? We have so many things to get to. Back to the Bald Face Truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. This weekend is always weird. You know what I mean? There's some weird weekends. I always feel like the after Christmas, before New Year's Day week is kind of a strange week. Uh, In the 5 o'clock hour, I'm going to recap some of the biggest stories of 2022. As we say goodbye to 2022, uh, come Tuesday, we will be talking about 2023. Um, By the way, 
Stephen, we'll talk about this in the 5 o'clock hour, but I want you to think about what you think the biggest stories of 2022 were. And was it a good sports year or not? Was you know People always say, was it a good year? Was it a good sports year for people in our listening audience? We will make that determination in the 5 o'clock hour. Let's play some Punch It audio. We interrupt this broadcast with a special announcement from the Bald Face Truth Headquarters. Hey, we're all about truth, justice, and the American way here, okay? Which is why we've spanned the globe and pulled the top audio cuts of the day. You're going to hear little snippets of sound. Hey, it's time for Punch It Audio, presented by First Call Heating and Cooling. Let's start with the Alamo Bowl. Remember the Alamo? Washington beat Texas last night. Alamo Bowl. Here's how it sounded. Punch it. On second at six, Talapapa back in. He's got a stiff arm, a first down, and more. Talapapa to the end zone. Touchdown, Huskies from 42 yards. Pac-12 feeling pretty good about itself after last night's Washington win over Texas. 27-20 is the final. Huskies get the 11th win of their season. Really good year for Washington. Really good year for the Pac-12 which until today was sitting on a 3-1 and bowl record. UCLA had an opportunity to make it 4-1, but wilted in the Sun Bowl. In the second half, uh, Pittsburgh scored 20 unanswered, and it came down to a game-winning field goal as UCLA clung to a 35-34 lead in the closing seconds. Pitt lining up for a field goal. Punch Not to tip anybody if he hits his field goal. Up and... There it is as uh, Pitt goes on to win 37-35 in the Sun Bowl. Rose Bowl and Cotton Bowl for the Pac-12. That's what's left. Pac-12 clinging to a 3-2 bowl record. Big 12 Conference, meanwhile, sitting at 1-5 in bowl games. Kenny Dillingham, former Oregon offensive coordinator, was on the show today. I asked him about the critics who say he was distracted at the end of Oregon's season. Here's Dillingham answering the critics. Punch it. Yeah, I was distracted only because I was all in. Like, I was so all in at Oregon. All in. I mean, for me, right, at that stage, I mean, I think we scored. We went into the, I mean, I think we had 30 points in two of the last three games versus uh, two of the best defenses in the league. To answer those questions, absolutely not. That's not what I'm about. I'm about the people, and I was all in on trying to win a Pac-12 championship. I was all in on trying to go to the Rose Bowl. I was on it all in on trying to go to the Final Four. Uh, that's not how it played out, which sucked. But for me, not even close. I was as the only thing that distracted me was the vision of being 11 and one, being 12 and one, and going to play the Final Four. Kenny Dillingham at Arizona State. Going to be interesting to see how he works out. I get why ASU did it. He makes sense. He's the local kid. He can recruit. He can call offense. He's got a plan. And the plan is to put a fence around the state of Arizona and go, hey, look, every good player in this state needs to be playing for Arizona State. And then go out in the portal and other places and recruit players from outside of there. But, uh, you know, I don't 
know how he couldn't have been distracted. And I get, I get it. He has to say he wasn't. But I don't know how he couldn't have been at least a little distracted. But the bigger distraction for Oregon was Bo Nix's ankle. It's all we were talking about in the last three or four weeks of the season. He was injured in the Washington game. Cost them the game. Hell, Washington might have beat him even if Nix was healthy. They put it back together to beat Utah. They couldn't get it done, couldn't close out Oregon State. I don't think it was the play caller being distracted. I think it was the ankle of the quarterback that probably cost them more than anything. The 5 at 5's coming up. We'll talk about the year 2022 in the 5 o'clock hour. Was it a good sports year or not? Plus, what's your peeve is still ahead. Also, what's on tap for the weekend? Huge weekend in sports. I want you here for it. B-F-F-T. From the Pac West Center in downtown Portland, presented by High Caliber Millwrights, here's John Canzano with the bald-faced truth. Was 2022 a great sports year? Like, you ask a business owner, hey, what kind of year did you have? Well, was 2022 a good year? You might ask an athlete, hey, was it a good year? Was it a good season? As they look back on the year they just had? Was it a good year for Oregon football? Was it a good year for Oregon State? How about this? Was it a good year in general, in sports, in our region? Let's think about all the things that happened. All the championships that were won or maybe not won. Track and field, soccer, baseball, football, basketball, all the Olympic sports, of course. You tell me, was it a good year or not in sports? What was the highlight? What was the story of the year in 2022? I'll get to all of that this hour. Plus, uh, we'll, we'll do what's your peeve later this hour. Also, we will talk about what's on tap for the weekend. But we start the 5 o'clock hour every day with the 5 at 5. Let's do it. The 5 at 5. Brought to you by Mercedes-Benz of Wilsonville. See more than 4,000 vehicles at Swickert.com. Well, the state of New Jersey, gaming regulators in New Jersey, ordered sports books to, to halt betting on the Citrus Bowl. Apparently, Purdue and LSU game, an individual associated with the Purdue football team, violated state regulations. Sources familiar with the decision told ESPN that retired NFL quarterback Drew Brees, who signed on to become an interim assistant coach for Purdue, is the individual in question. He's got a business relationship with a sports book called PointsBet. Now the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement instructed the state sports books there to stop taking bets involving Purdue. It said existing wagers on the Citrus Bowl that were placed after December 15th will be voided. Breeze is a Purdue alum. He signed on to be the interim coach on December 15th uh, the notice did not name the individual. It apparently is just a violation that Breeze is a brand ambassador for points bet and happens to be involved in this game. In the last two weeks, the point spread on the Citrus Bowl moved from LSU being an 11.5-point favorite to a 14-point favorite. Uh, we'll see what happens here, but the wagering on the Citrus Bowl is in question. All of it's been halted. 
Meanwhile, North Carolina State, a little scandal going on there. Radio voice Gary Hahn, he's the broadcaster for North Carolina State Radio, was suspended indefinitely during uh, the Mayo Bowl on Friday, today. Uh, Maryland uh, playing North Carolina State in the Duke's Mayo Bowl. I just can't get over that. It's like the Cheez-It Bowl. Anyway, he started talking about the Sun Bowl. UCLA and Pitt were playing. And he said, quote, Down among all the illegal aliens in El Paso, UCLA leading Pitt 14-6. to Learfield Communications is the broadcast rights holder for North Carolina State. They employ the guy. They confirmed this suspension and issued a statement saying they have suspended him indefinitely um by the way uh el paso officials have declared a state of emergency as migrants are continuing to cross into the city from mexico seeking asylum han is the voice of north carolina state football and men's basketball he's been there for about 30 years he's been suspended after the illegal aliens reference that's number two in our five at five number three let's talk about uh, Ronaldo. Cristiano Ronaldo has signed with a Saudi Arabian club, Al Nasser. He left Manchester United. The club announced Friday today. Signed a contract uh, and will get $75 million a year. Highest played player in history. His contract runs through the summer of 2025. He, 37-year-old uh, Cristiano Ronaldo headed over to the Saudi, not the Sovereign Wealth Fund, but with one of their soccer clubs. In the NFL, everybody keeping an eye on roster movement and fantasy league teams. The Chargers say they're going to activate edge rusher Joey Bosa from the injured reserve. They've got a matchup against the Rams coming up. Head coach Brandon Staley says he looks good. This is part of his return to play. We're excited to see him compete. The Bolts are 9-6. and six. They've got a playoff berth in hand with two games remaining. The Rams are 5-10. and ten. They've been eliminated, but they're a little dangerous with Baker Mayfield at quarterback. So here we'll see Joey Bosa, who practiced this week for the first time since undergoing a groin surgery after week three. Keep an eye on that. Along those lines in the NFL, Jalen Hurts is doubtful this week Sunday's game against the Saints he's listed as doubtful officially that uh, all but eliminates his chances of playing they're saying it's a health and safety issue it's his right shoulder the team says he has progressed to the point where he'll be on the field quote sooner rather than later end quote the Eagles want to give him one more week of rest and that makes sense he took part in practice yesterday It was the first time he's been on the field since injuring the shoulder on December 18th against the Bears. Hurts uh, and the Eagles are 13-2. They host the 6-9 Saints on Sunday. That's the 5-5, five at five, five biggest stories going on in sports. Uh, let's start with the weird one there, Stephen. Um, Drew Brees signs on to be the interim coach for Purdue's bowl game. Turns out his association with a gambling entity uh, has caused the New Jersey gaming commission to say we're not going to allow people to bet on that game what are they doing here well i mean 
it's probably the right decision, right? Like, you, you just can't have, especially in a game like this, like a bowl game, it's all about motivation and just inside information of who's playing, who's not. And you can't have a coach affiliated with some type of gambling industry and you know expect this game to go off without a hitch. I think it's the right choice. It's just kind of weird that all these gambling companies are going after all these former athletes. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't have a problem with them taking the game off the board because there's probably some type of information out there, and you you can't have that. You need to have somewhat integrity of the game. So I got no problem. Do you think Drew Brees should be in trouble here? Because people in New Jersey are saying that he violated the law in yes. New Jersey, that the New Jersey Division of Gaming Enforcement says this is a this is illegal, that you know he, he was not supposed to do this. He violated gaming laws in New Jersey. Now, I don't think, like, I, I kind of think, like, Purdue should have been more tuned into this. Yeah, I agree with you. I think it's on both of them. And, you know, you need to be smarter if you're Drew Brees and not think that this is, you can't be naive about it because gambling is such, it's so relevant now in all sports. Like, if you're going to be associated with a gambling company, that's fine. But don't act like you're going to be a coach then because then you just can't get into that type of business. Ronaldo going to Saudi Arabia to join Al Nasser after uh, his Manchester United exit. Um, this is going to cause a stir with some people. Uh, obviously, it's you know along the lines of the Saudi Sovereign Wealth Fund and the issues that were involved in the LIV golf tournament. People are going to go, hey, look, uh, he's selling out $75 million a year. Do you think this will be a... A story of that magnitude in the soccer world, and you know, as it was in golf. Uh yeah, I think so. You know, I I think a lot of people understand where he's coming from. I understand what he's doing. Like he's getting that money, he's getting a retirement check, right? Like now he's not going to have to do anything, and he's already made a lot of money, and he's going after the money. But uh, you know, I think people are smart and they're onto these type of things. I mean, you look at the World Cup; there was so much against the World Cup, and there's a lot of talk against it, which as it should have been. There's a lot of bad things happening over there. I think people are smart enough now to realize where this money is coming from and that he really is just selling out. So I think it's going to be uh, continue to be a big story. North Carolina State radio broadcaster calling Duke's Mayo Bowl today. Uh, North Carolina lost to Maryland in that game. He makes a comment as he's relaying the score of the Sun Bowl saying, quote, down among the illegal aliens in El Paso, it's 14 to 16. UCLA leads Pitt. Uh, Learfield Communications has suspended him. Uh, it is true that officials in El Paso have declared a state of emergency as migrants are continuing to cross the border into the city from Mexico seeking asylum. This one, to me, Stephen, falls into the, you know, is the, uh, first of all, it's poor form. Second of all, uh, is the juice worth the squeeze? He's, you know, he's taking a moment here to make a, statement maybe he thinks he's being funny maybe he's making a political statement but i just feel like it's so unnecessary to kind of take that shot like what was the gain for him he got he get a chuckle from somebody in in exchange you know the, his station is going hey we're not okay with this i agree i listened to the audio and it didn't come across as a joke at all so if he was trying to joke it, it didn't hit and i think it's just a time and a place right like if you're with your friends you can say those type of things. If you're working in a work, you know, a public workplace like that, you can't be saying those type of things. So I, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't know. I'm, I don't like to just fire people on the spot. Like I like right. to, you know, I want to give them second chances. People make mistakes, but you have to know better if you're in this situation. I mean, you know, we all know broadcasters and they know the rules. Like every time you speak into this mic, you have to act like it's on and you're on air. 
right? And so you just you got to be more you got to be smarter than that. I think that you know one of the things that you know I've heard other broadcasters say is, look, you you've got you always you've got an open mic in front of you, and I have an open mic in front of me for 15 hours a week, okay? And I understand that it's a honor and it's a privilege to have this platform and to be able to talk to people. And I think where broadcasters sometimes get in trouble, and in this case, I can't speak to the guy because I don't know his heart or whatnot. I mean, he's going to lean back on the idea that officials in El Paso actually have declared a state of emergency. This is a news story. Uh, migrants are crossing the border into the city from Mexico. They're seeking asylum. Um, you know, he's going to say, hey, that was an actual thing. I wasn't trying to, you know, be a jerk about it. But I also go, look, dude, you're a sports broadcaster. You know, keep your politics out of it. If, if you're trying to make a statement or whatnot, just give the Sun Bowl score. Like, I, I just don't get the unnecessary inflammatory stuff. And, you know, apparently he's got real issues with this issue. So I, I don't get it. And, you know, and again, I always come back to, like, kind of the idea, like, you know, I've talked to people who, uh, you know, even my grandparents is, you know, they – immigrated with their parents from Italy into the United States, like, you know, the, the land of opportunity and the absolute desperation. You don't you just don't know the story of the people who are seeking asylum. And frankly, some some or many of those may be doing it legally. So, you know, just don't take an unnecessary shot. I just don't get it. You know, it's 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 not, you know, like on the, no, on no, the, there's no benefit yeah. to it, right? Like, there's no upside. Yeah, there's What's no the upside? upside? It's only downside like Yes, people might agree with you, but at the same time, like, what are you going to get out of it? Are you going to get a raise? Probably not. You're going to get fired, if anything. I think the right thing here is, like, I don't know the guy. I don't know if he's had other things that he's done. Maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. But, you know, his his employer knows him far better than I do. I would like to see, uh, you know, an apology from him or some kind of explanation. But I don't think you need to cancel the guy either because I also think, like, you know, this may have just been – a guy who is a mid-bowl season, traveling, uh, tired, wiped out. He makes a poor form comment. You know, there's a state of emergency. Maybe somebody was talking about it on the commercial break. Maybe somebody put it in his ear. I don't know. But, again, is the juice worth the squeeze in this case? It's just not. All right, coming up, uh, what's your peeve? I want to know what's bothering you. You tell me. Get it off your chest. I don't want you taking it into 2023 is what I'm saying. So right now, what is your peeve today? What is your peeve for the year? You can feel free to be like, you know what bothered me this year? I'll take that answer. You know what bothered me today? What I saw? I got this neighbor. You can tell me. You can get it off your chest. 503-417-7575 is a number. What's your peeve? You've got the home of the truth. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. We're going to start off 2023 running full speed next week. I want you here. We'll come right out of the Rose Bowl. We're going to be uh, off on Monday because of uh, the holiday that everybody is observing, and we will be back on Tuesday. But on Tuesday, we will hit the ground running with uh, the Bald Face Truth radio show, and uh, I've got plans for big guests all next week. We've got big news coming on the Pac-12 front, a lot to talk about with the Blazers, the Ducks, the Beavers. 
Uh, and we're going to delve into some other stories that are outside of uh, the stuff we normally cover and care about. And I'll take suggestions as well if you want to uh, tweet at me, at John Canzano BFT. But in this segment, we're going to leave the past behind. I never like you going into a weekend with something that's bothering you on your mind. Uh, I want you to have a carefree weekend with all the focus and energy uh, going in the right direction. It's why we do this segment every Friday. We call it What's Your Peeve? You can call in at 503-417-7575. Basically tell us what's bothering you or what has bothered you or what continues to bother you. Get it off your chest. Let's do this. What's your peeve? Oh, that pisses me off. That pisses me right off. Call 503-417-7575 and tell Kinzano what's your peeve on the BFT. Brought to you by Revolution Dental Implant Center. A smile revolution, one day solution. Let's talk about your peeves. 503-417-7575. Who wants to be first? Line up. I got lines open. Steven, what's your peeve? You're going to start us off. All right. So I, I have so many peeves, it's hard to get them all out here. But I'm going to give one sports one, one non-sports one. First was the sports one. Uh, I'm, I've been betting on college bowl games, and I'm tired of losing by half a point. That's just my peeve in general. Uh, I was just watching Ohio take on um, Wyoming, and I had Wyoming plus two and a half, and they lose in overtime by three. So that's a peeve of mine, number one. Number two is why do kids, when you open a door for them and they're walking outside the door, they all of a sudden just stop right in front of you and just look at everything, and then you can't get by them. My kids do this to me all the time. We were leaving the house last night. Uh, I open the door, they get in front of me, then they stand there and don't move, and I just want to get into the car and get going, but they stand there for like five seconds, and I finally have to tell them, hey, let's go. Let's move our feet and walk. It, it really just drives me insane, and uh, I don't know why they do that, but they do. Is, that, is it rude by them, or do they just not know? I, I think they just don't know, but at the same time, like, why are we just stopping? Like, I have to remind them all the time. They do it at the grocery store, like I'm pushing a cart, They'll walk right in front of me, and then they will stop. And I'm like, yes. like I, I just don't understand why they do. That. I mean, I guess they're, they're trying to draw a charge. Yeah, they are blocker charge. I, I think they're just like getting distracted, right? They're like little dogs, and they just see a squirrel, and they just stop and see, look around. But it just it drives me nuts. It's like just keep going. I like that. Uh, you know what I don't like? I don't like people who lack punctuality. I it to me it's rude. I I and it's rudeness in general that bothers me. It's like. To your point, if uh, if I hold the door for somebody and they don't hold the door, like for the next person that's behind them, or 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 even if they don't give me the courtesy wave in traffic, if I let them in, I find that rude. So lack of punctuality is a rudeness thing. But there's something that happened to us a couple of nights ago that really bothered me. I need to get it off my chest. I suppose I could do a Yelp review and roast this restaurant, but I'm not going to do that. I'm not even going to name it. I'm just going to tell you what happened, and you guys tell me if, you're, if we're entitled to be upset. Now, when I'm hungry and I go into a restaurant, I have low expectations. I just need a table. I need a plate in front of me I, and a menu, and I'll order quickly. Like, we're not going to be that, that family because we have kids. We're not that family that goes, let us take some time with the menu. No, we're like almost ready to order the minute we sit down. So we go into this restaurant, and it happened to be 
this was a couple of nights ago, so this must have been like Wednesday. And uh, the restaurants were busy, uh, you know, and so we understand that. But we walk in, and they sat us at a table, okay? And then a large party came in behind us. But we were already seated. We were already ordered. They had already brought water to the table. And they may have even started to bring food to the table when the host of the restaurant came over and asked us if they could relocate us. I've never had this happen. I've worked in restaurants. I've never asked a, a table that had been seated already to move. And this wasn't a fancy-schmancy restaurant, but it was, you know, a normal restaurant where families come in and sit down. And so my wife and I kind of looked at each other. It was an awkward moment there because it wasn't going to be convenient to just get up and move. Like the kids had the coloring books out. The food was, you know, there was some food on the table. It was like we're going to have to move everything on the table. And I was kind of looking at, like, why do we need to move? Like, you know, are you closing this section of the restaurant? What's going on? And it turns out that the party that was behind us had kind of a high-maintenance lady that was part of their group who said she didn't like the table that they had set for her group of, like, 10 or 12 people. She wanted it to be, uh, instead of two tables side by side, one long table, and they needed that space in order to accommodate her. And rather than inconvenience her, they decided they would take this family and they would ask us to move. Now, I got up. I was not happy. I didn't say anything, but my wife could tell that I was not happy with the restaurant. And the server who eventually came over was confused. She was like, why did you guys move? I said, ask him. Ask the host guy. Uh, I almost, like if it was just me alone, I just would have walked out. Because in that moment, I feel like they're disrespecting you to the point where they're like, hey, we uh, we don't value you as a customer. And I literally at that point, I was also hangry. But I, I literally was like, I will stay here and eat, but I am never coming back here. That's what I was kind of thinking to myself. Am I wrong there? That's my peeve. No, especially when you're hangry like that, right? Like you're you're hungry, you want to eat. The question for me is, is like, did they have like a meeting and they looked at who was out there in the restaurant? Like, okay, this family looks like they won't be as confrontational as these people. <laughs> they identified right? us. Yeah. I think it was because we were the last one seated. Okay. You know, we were the last one seated. And by the way, I would have just told that lady, sorry, we can't accommodate you. Or you're going to have to wait. Or you take the two damn tables that were side by side. Yeah. But she wanted one long table for some reason. In her mind, when she saw this dinner, it was like the Last Supper. And Jesus was in the middle, and there was breaking bread and all this stuff. So she saw one table instead of two side by side tables. And in my, in my book, I don't care if it was us or somebody else. I, if they moved somebody else, I would have had the same thought. I would have been like, that's really disrespectful. Like the people are already seated, and you're moving them already. And here's what I'm going to do to that restaurant. I'm not going to name them. I'm just never going back. Well, I will never go back. And you said there was already food on the table, like yeah. drink, like that's that's a little past the prime, right? You, you can't you can't yeah. be doing that. I should have just said no. And my wife and I kind of looked at each other, like, are we going to make? Is this the hill we're going to die on? Like, are we are we going to say no? We're staying in this table, or are we going to accommodate? It was just kind of weird. That's what the phones a, come out with the videos. They start recording you, though. Yeah. I'm not going to be that guy. Uh, Peter Sampson, what's your peeve? Yeah, I mean, you know how it is. Is you get older, random things, whether, oh, my knee aches for no reason, I got a bad back. My peeve is with my body, and right now you can probably hear it. It's with my voice. No good reason. It's just decided to go out on me, and I think it's just a function of age. I'm not sick. Every morning I do a vocal warm-up, you know, get in the shower, get loose, flexible, and, uh, yeah, just yesterday all of a sudden, hmm, the left 
sides not wanting to vibrate like the right. And that's a problem because, John, I can come in here. I could be in a walking boot and I could do this show. I could come in dressed like a slob, but I got to have the pipes. They got to be smooth. And right now, they are not. There you go. That's not a bad peeve. I think we're all in the right on this one. I'll take yours at 503-417-757. By the way, who had the best peeve of the three of us? Uh, you can't vote for your own. You can't vote for your own. I think Peter because I feel that all the time. <laughs> like, yes. maybe, because I'm getting old, too, but like I feel like my body just is failing me. How old are you guys? 35. I am 44. Okay. okay. <laughs> my dad told me this when when I was uh, younger and he was in his he's probably in his 50s. He said, you have no idea. He said, it's coming for you. It's coming for you. And I talk to people who are in their 70s and 80s now. And the people who in their, are in their 70s and 80s that really worked hard uh, in their 30s and 40s on getting in better shape and trying to eat healthier and sleep better and hydrate more uh, are, in, uh, are in a little better shape than those who did not. You know, it's, I think you guys have an opportunity now, as do the listeners who are in their 30s and 40s. Put in the work now. I, I'm thinking about that now myself. Because I'm thinking, like, at 80, what do I want to be like and what do I want to feel like? But you're right. Some of this is just, like, out of your control. Well, it is New Year's resolution time, so maybe uh, maybe I start doing that. But, <laughs> New Year's. I mean, I, the thing is, like, I went and I, uh, you know, my my wife knows a guy who has his own basketball court. Like, has his own gym. So he opens it up to us, let us shoot with the kids. And, you know, I played the, I played my wife and my son one-on-two. Like, I was exhausted afterwards. It's like, I'm not trying hard. I'm just, you know, goofing around with them. My legs still hurt today. Like, they're sore. It's just, I, I don't know, man. I can't take it. There you go. I want your peeve. 503-417-7575. Plus, up next, I'll tell you, is 2022 uh, a good sports year or a bad sports year? Thumbs up, thumbs down. There's no way around it. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. I think anybody who's worked in a restaurant is forgiving. You give restaurants a wide berth. So if you heard my story in the last segment of the restaurant we were in the other night that forced us to move tables or asked us to move tables, my wife looked at me, Anna looked at me and said, kind of gave me the look like, are we going to do this? Are we going to make this stand or not? And we kind of just went, okay, we'll move for you. We'll help you out by moving tables, and we gathered all our plates and the food and the cups and the kids and the jackets, and we moved to the back of the restaurant and sat down. But I did, uh, I did not speak. I did not speak to uh, almost anyone <laughs> during the meal because what was going to come out of my mouth wasn't going to be nice. Are you, I, I think just, we talked about you know, this. Are you the type of person that looks up the menu before you go to a restaurant? Not really, but I'm also I'm really fast. I just kind of look, and if something looks good, that's what I'm getting. Mm. So I'm. Well, are you like this uh, big decider? Like you uh, take forever? No, I'm like you as well. But my wife is a super into like I'm gonna check out the menu, and so <laughs> it was just like when I when you were talking about that story, it's like you're ready to go, you're hungry, you're ordering. It's not yes. like it's not like you know the restaurant looks at you and like oh this guy he's gonna take forever. Like no, no, we're go. good. Yeah, no, okay. we're good. And and look, we were already ordered. Like some like here's what we did. I'll just say it was it was an Asian restaurant, and the two younger kids had ordered like pot stickers and rice. That was already on the table. They were already eating, and we were waiting for the other dishes to come out. And 
In fact, there was soup on the table. There was tea on the table. There was water glasses on the table. I know because I moved them all. And to me, it just was the point of the restaurant saying to this party of four, you know, this small party family, hey, we need to move you because we have a party of 12 that's coming in, and the lady's throwing a fit because the two tables can't be side by side. She wanted the tables to be long ways. In fact, she even looked into the room, and she pointed at us and said, I'd like for the tables to be right there. I saw her do it. So she spotted you guys out from the start. Yeah, she said, move those peasants. Get them out of the way. They're not going to (laughs) argue. So that was my peeve. I'll tell you this. I'll never go back. Never. Million years. That could be the last restaurant open. I'll be like, nope, not doing it. Dave's in Kaiser. He's got a couple of peeves on his mind. What's up, Dave? Okay, first one's the sports one, John. Okay. Uh, No more Pac-12 games starting after 6 o'clock in the evening. And I know how we could solve that. How about the Midwest and the East Coast start their games at 7 in the morning? Doesn't that work? You want them to start the games early. Yes. Is this a peeve yeah. or this just this sounds like a suggestion you have? Absolutely. Yeah, I've got a peeve that are I don't want any more games that I have to stay up till midnight to watch. Yeah. Okay. Uh, in the Pac-12. Okay. Uh, why I, can't I think they're the going to solve that. Dave, I think they're going to solve it. I think they're just going to they're part of the I think a lot of the games are going to be on Amazon now and I don't think it's going to matter what time the games kick off. So they'll probably kick oh, them off at like 2 2 p.m. That'd be a dream come true. Okay, what okay, else you got? Now my my personal peeve. Um, I go into a business, and I'm standing there at the counter, placing an order, and my person that's waiting on me steps away to answer the phone. Oh, mm. uh, drives it's me rude. crazy. It's rude. It is. I'm there. I'm a paying customer. And they're taking a phone call. Yeah. Anyway, there you go. Happy yeah, New I, Year to you, yeah. John, uh, your family, and your crew there. Thank you, and Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to all the listeners. I hope you have a great 2023. I want you to have a great year. I hope you make some resolutions and stick to them. But for a moment here, I want to talk about the year 2022. I want to talk about whether or not it was a good sports year. Was it a good year? Was it a great year? Was it a bad year? I think uh, we start by talking about the high-profile sports teams. I think we saw the Blazers in the last year pivot from the C.J. McCollum era Blazers to uh, a team that feels like it's in transition, will soon be sold. And uh, But I think, by and large, the Blazers have, have been adequate this in this last year. I don't think they've been part of the problem. I don't think it's been like a shining example of joy and glee, but I think it's been... Better than expected with a little bit of with a little bit of hope. It's cloudy with a chance of meatballs, so to speak, when you talk about the Blazers. Uh, the college football teams in the state have been lights out. I think it's been really, from an Oregon State standpoint, really encouraging to see what Jonathan Smith has done. It's a home run. If you talk about 2022 in Oregon State football, home home run. Like it's it's been it's been better than expected. Great year. I think people look back at 2022. If you're an Oregon State fan, you'll go, that was the year that we really broke through. Uh, from an Oregon standpoint, I know there was a lot of gloom and doom in the wake of Mario Cristobal leaving and people worried about the recruiting classes and worried about the trajectory of the program. But I think Dan Lanning has at least held the line when it comes to uh, winning 10 games, 
having a great recruiting class. I think it's been, you know, it's been better than expected in the wake of Mario Cristobal. I think some people worried about a step back. I don't think it's really been a step back. I think it's been kind of more of the same, but still, uh, you know, they've left the putt short a little bit. Like, you know, they're not in the playoff yet. Uh, they're, they're, they weren't really close to the playoff, losing two of the last three games of the regular season. And so just, you know, I think good, not great. I think the college basketball teams and men's college basketball, largely in the last year, uh, disappointing. You guys agree with that? You agree with that, Stephen? Oregon, Oregon State, I think it's Dana Alban to this point this season. It's been, eh, it's been a real mixed bag. Last year was disappointing. Wayne Tinkle was dismal last year at Oregon State in men's basketball. Like, uh, you know, Portland State's been all right. UP and Shantae Leggins has been, I think, the best consistent story uh, when we talk about men's college basketball. Yeah, I don't disagree with you. Uh, you know, Oregon not making the NCAA tournament a season ago when they're usually a fixture in that, you know, in that mold where, you know, they get hot towards March. Like, they usually play their best basketball in February, March. That did not happen this, uh, this past season. And then this year, 7-5 and five so far, not great as well. And I know there's been a lot of injuries for Oregon, but they haven't looked great. Oregon State, they've been down ever since that Elite Eight run. And, uh, you know, they have, you know, they got Jordan Pope as a freshman who I think is a really good player. And after that, I don't really know who else you can build around in that program. And I don't know if it's a coaching thing, if it's a recruiting thing, but there's not a lot of hope there at Oregon State. You know, Portland had a good showing in the uh, the PKI, but after that, they've been struggling a little bit. And it's a little disappointing to see, you know, they lost to Loyola Marymount last game in the opening game for West Coast Conference. But I think in general, you have to be excited about the UP program. And then Portland State, you know, they brought in a lot of transfers and they kind of are what they are. You know, they're a solid team. But, uh, you know, I think all college basketball in the state of Oregon really has been down with, uh, you know, I'd say it's a negative except for UP. I think UP would be the one school you say, you know, is building upward. Yeah, I think uh, when we talk about whether or not 2022 has been a great sports year, we also have to include the Pac-12. Uh, USC and UCLA leaving for the Big Ten Conference was a gut punch to the Pac-12. I think the conference is going to recover. I don't believe the gloom and doomers out there that say, this is the end of times, and it's just not. It's not. I guess that gets clicks. I guess it gets people interested in you know, uh, reading the stories that are on CBS Sportsline and other places that are buying into that stuff. But um, I, I just feel like the conference will be okay ultimately. But it wasn't a great year away from the field for the Pac-12. It was a great year football-wise on the field. Women's college basketball, uh, Stanford's been a tremendous story in the Pac-12. Uh, they look like they are going to be, the, again, the runaway winner of the women's Pac-12 season. Uh, after that, though, there's a group of teams, including Oregon, that are all fighting for second place. I think Oregon State is in a little bit of a transition. I think the the pandemic and the COVID years cost them a whole bunch of players who transferred and left. And and uh, I think Scott Rook's got good young players, and he's got a really good player that hasn't yet played a, a game. So I think, you know, and Talia Vaughn often is maybe the best player that's ever played at Oregon State by the time she's done. Keep an eye on that. But so I think, you know, when we talk about 2022, I think it's just been okay for a sports year. Outside of the Oregon State football story and Oregon continuing with continuity and the Blazers being a little bit more fun than they were last year, I think it's just been okay. Talk me off that, guys. No, I think you're right. Locally, I would say it's an average to below average sports year. Um, You know, you're right with the Trailblazers. It's fun because they're doing something different. They're not just rolling out the same old product with new old Shea. They tried some different things. They've traded some players, but we still don't know if it's ultimately going to work. 
right? They get Shaden Sharp. Is he going to turn into that guy? But, you know, I think, uh, you know, for the Blazers, like, you're cautiously, cautiously excited for, like, what could happen down the road. And then for football, I think football, you know, locally is the one thing that's really popped with both Oregon teams playing really well, having a good Civil War game as well, renewing that rivalry. I think that's the one takeaway that I had was this is a real rivalry now. Oregon-Oregon State is back to where it was before, where I don't just consider Oregon as the most talented team in the state and is going to have to take a lot to beat them. I think Oregon State is right up there now. And now with the transfer of DJU, they're bringing in some other guys. I think, you know, locally, Oregon-Oregon State, that's going to be exciting for years to come. And I think, you know, it's going to be a big rivalry, especially with Jonathan, Jonathan Smith there getting the contract extension. I don't see them falling off very much. 503-417-7575. Good year, bad year, mediocre year. 2023, I think, could be better because I think Oregon and Oregon State are both going to be good in football. I think uh, the basketball will have to be better. Jackson Shellstead at West Lynn High School, uh, you know, when he gets to the University of Oregon, that will be exciting again to see, uh, you know, a player who's a native Oregonian being at the center of uh, a team that should be good. I don't think Dana Altman's going to go away, uh, but uh, Wayne Tinkle and Oregon State, they ha- they've got to take a step forward. I think they've been better this year than they were a year ago, but still they're very young, and I don't see the results. Uh, and then uh, from the Blazers' standpoint, I think there's some there's some room for them to improve, get better, be more fun, be more consistent. But what do you say? What do you see in 2023? Also coming up, I'll tell you what's on tap this weekend. Back to the bald-faced truth with John Canzano on 750 The Game. Still fired up about that restaurant. <laughs> Get me move. You know they uh, they take you know if you're at a Blazer game and they'll say hey we're upgrading you and they'll take you out of the 300 level and they'll move you down to like the 100 to the 200 level and it's courtesy of Alaska Airlines and you know all the teams do something like that. It was the opposite for us in that restaurant. We were in a nice nice table of four and they said you know what we're downgrading you we practically ended up in the uh, alley behind the restaurant we're gonna put you with the real fans up in the 300 level <laughs> that's what it comes down to uh every uh every friday we tell you what's on tap there's so many good games coming up this weekend got some nfl games got some college football games all of it on tap let's do it now it's time for What's on Tap and What's on TV at the Independent on the BFT. Well, let's talk about the college football games tomorrow. we got a college football playoff semifinal taking place at 1 o'clock p.m. on ESPN. Michigan will play TCU. Later in the day, 5 o'clock on ESPN, it's Georgia, Ohio State on a New Year's Eve special. The Music City Bowl will take place in the morning, 9 a.m. on ABC. That's Iowa and Kentucky. The Sugar Bowl taking place at 9 a.m. Number five, Alabama. Number nine, Kansas State. Love Alabama big in that one. Uh, on Monday, I'm going to jump ahead to Monday. We got the Cotton Bowl Classic, USC Tulane, 10 a.m. ESPN. And the Rose Bowl, uh, that game will be 2 p.m. on ESPN. It is Utah and Penn State. Uh, Monday, uh, January 9th, that's way in the horizon, a week from Monday will be the national championship game, in case anybody's wondering. That's when we will see what I think is going to be 
Michigan playing Georgia for the national championship. Who's your championship game? Uh, I got Georgia taking on Michigan. I'm going to go chalky here. I think uh, I think Georgia can handle Ohio State, and I think Michigan takes care of TCU pretty easily. You think so? I think TCU could give Michigan some trouble, but I'm not encouraged with what the Big 12 is doing in the postseason. So I'm kind of looking at that going, okay, uh, I like the Big 10 better than I like uh, the top of the Big 12 conference. So what about we'll the spread? You're, un- you're undefeated in the spread in Pac-12. Uh, what, what is the spread picks? Iowa, Kentucky, me, uh, over under 30 and a half points. Uh, I'm not... 30 and a half. That's the total in the Iowa-Kentucky game. I don't like that one, but I'll tell you who I do like. I, uh, tomorrow, 9 a.m., Alabama playing Kansas State. Mm-hmm. Alabama's a seven-point favorite in that game. They are going to roll Kansas State in that in that bowl game tomorrow. So I like Alabama big. I like Georgia to take care of Ohio State. It, the spread's five and a half. Georgia will cover that. I like that one. I think Georgia wins big. Uh, uh, I already, I'm already on record. I think Tulane is going to beat USC. That spread is dropped now to one and a half. USC one and a half point favorite. I think uh, Utah is Utah Penn State is a really close game. I think Utah's going to win by a field goal. So I do think they'll cover the minus two. Uh, I like it. I don't love it, but you know what I mean. I mean it's just I, that spread feels about right. Mm-hmm. And then uh, you talk about. The Michigan game? What's the spread on that Michigan game? I don't have it in front I'm of me. I'm looking at seven and a half Michigan. I'll take I'll take Michigan. Like if I if I but of the games that I feel the best about, it's Georgia. Georgia's gonna beat Ohio State, and I think they have a chance to beat them by double digits. I agree, yeah. So that's the game I like the most. I think Alabama is about to teach Kansas State a lesson about, you know, what division of football you should be in. Like, and I think there's no opt-outs for Alabama, if I'm correct. Besides, I, I, besides transfers, yeah. I don't think anyone's opting out that are held not, holding out for the draft. I, you know, Bryce Young is going to play. Uh, Anderson, the defensive end, is going to play. So I think they are going to be pretty full strength. I didn't like the game today, and I said this earlier in the week when we talked about the Sun Bowl. I didn't like it because even though we were hearing Dorian Thompson-Robinson and, Jack, and Zach Charbonnet were going to play, I just didn't know, did UCLA want to be there in, in – Ultimately, I kind of feel like UCLA tried to fool itself into wanting to be there by picking some fights and being chippy early, but then I, I think they just kind of lost interest in the game. It just it looked like a clinic on how to like, give a game away. Yeah, we were uh, we were watching the game at the studio here, Judah and myself, and we were talking about how it was getting chippy. And he's like, "Why is it getting chippy?" I go, "What you haven't heard of the Pittsburgh UCLA rivalry that goes back decades?" Like. They were, like, fake trying to be tough to get pumped up. And, uh, yeah, it should have been pretty obvious at the start there that you said he wasn't too concerned about being there. Yeah, it just felt that way to me. And and then Pitt was weird. I think Pitt, you know, I, I actually think Pitt deserved to win the game the way UCLA played in the second half. But I wasn't surprised because I thought it would be, you know, I almost picked UCLA to lose the game outright. But I, I just picked it to be very close, even though they were a four-and-a-half to five-and-a-half point favorite. I didn't think they would cover that, and they did not cover that. But of the bowl games left that I like, I really like Georgia over Ohio State. I think Ohio State gets too much cred. I didn't like the way they competed against Michigan, and I think Georgia is far better than Michigan. I don't think anybody's touching Georgia in this playoff. I think Georgia's going to take care of Ohio State, and then I think they will beat the pants off whoever they play in the championship game. I just think it's set up that way. And let's not forget that Georgia-Ohio State game is a lot like the Oregon Georgia game in that it's a, it's you know it's a peach bowl 
it, it's going to be a pro-Georgia crowd. As much as those Ohio State fans will travel, the Georgia fans just have to walk out their door and, you know, catch an Uber. And they are going to uh, – I think Georgia's going to light up Ohio State. Uh, but I, uh, the Michigan-TCU game, I think, is closer. But, again, I think we have some evidence here. Like, whenever I go to handicap these games, the games I have the hardest time handicapping were, like, the early non-conference games in the Pac-12 where we didn't know. We didn't know if Arizona State was any good. We didn't know, you know, how good Oregon or Washington or Washington State were. And they were playing teams where we didn't know, you know, either – how good they were. So it was the early conference games, but after you get some sample, you kind of know what you're dealing with. Same goes for the bowl season. Pay attention to this. The Pac-12 is showing you that the top half of this conference is pretty good. Washington, Utah, Oregon, Oregon State, USC, pretty good. Uh, You get into the middle of this conference, and it gets a little dicier. So... Uh, Pay attention to that. Meanwhile, the Big 12 is showing us that the conference isn't very good and wasn't very deep. That 1-5 bowl record is alarming to me. And it suggests to me that Kansas State and TCU may have had some easy wins that were far easier than the wins that Michigan had to earn in the Big 10 and far easier than Alabama, you know, who faced LSU – who faced uh, Tennessee, who faced, uh, you know, uh, Georgia. They had to play some people. So I love Alabama to beat up on Kansas State. I love Georgia to take care of Ohio State. And I like a lot Michigan over TCU. And I think that they all cover. So keep an eye on those things. Uh, I also think, like, You know, USC, if it shows up, should beat Tulane. But I don't think it's going to show up. That's that's why I'm picking against USC in the Cotton Bowl. I just think Caleb Williams, Lincoln Riley, I think it's going to look a lot like the UCLA game today in the Sun Bowl. I think they're going to go there, and they're going to go warm up, and they're going to paint their nails and put words on their fingernails, and then they're going to show up, and they're going to play. And, you know, Tulane's going to come out like Fresno State came out in the L.A. Bowl and go, this is our World Cup final. We're here for it. And I think Tulane is going to play four solid quarters and make UCLA look a little, or USC look a little suspect. Uh, grab a podcast of this radio show wherever you get a podcast. Make sure you're subscribed and reading me at johnconzano.com, whether it's a free subscription or a paid subscription. Do what works for you. It works for me. We'll catch you in 2023. Happy New Year, everybody.